are now tuned in to this week's episode of our podcast. Today, we are going to interview some of the greatest and most influential minds in our field. By sharing our collective expertise, we will show you how to harness, control, and use your own skill set to achieve ultimate success and live the life you want. And now, please welcome your host. can listen to us on the go. Hi, TED Talks Daily listeners. We have a special series coming up. Every Friday for the next 10 weeks, we'll be sharing an episode of another podcast from the TED Audio Collective. Did you know that TED has 17 podcasts with more to come? This is an episode of the Design Matters with Debbie Millman podcast. On this episode, a conversation with writer Cheryl Strayed about her childhood, her career, and on the value of taking a very long hike. If you like what you hear, subscribe to Design Matters wherever you're listening to this. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. You could say that Cheryl Strayed is very adaptable. Her memoir, Wild, was adapted into a movie starring Reese Witherspoon. Another book, Tiny Beautiful Things, was adapted for the stage by Nia Vardalis and Thomas Kale. Tiny Beautiful Things itself was adapted from an advice column she once wrote called Dear Sugar, and that advice column has ultimately been adapted into a New York Times podcast called Sugar Calling. I'm joined by Cheryl Strayed, who is recording herself in her home in Portland, Oregon. Cheryl Strayed, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. I am so thrilled to be here. I've, I'm a fan of the podcast, and I've been dying to talk to you for ages. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so excited. <laughs> I listened to a recent podcast where you said that this pandemic has made it clear to you that the first thing you are is a writer. Was that ever really in doubt? No, no, it was never in doubt inside myself. But what I meant by that is one of the things that happened after Wild became a bestseller is suddenly I had so many opportunities that were not writing. They were writing adjacent. For example, I now have a really active career as a as a paid public speaker. I never, I mean, I do unpaid public talks too. But what I mean is I, I never in my wildest dreams imagined that I would be, you know, traveling the world giving talks. And I, and I am like, I actually have a whole career of that, in addition to my writing. And that was born out of a combination of, you know, wild success. And then also my, uh, you know, much to my surprise, I, I'm good at it. And I enjoy it. I understand that you're a huge planner, as am I, and it's been hard for you not to know what you're doing next month or July or August. How are you managing your schedule? Um, and I'm mostly asking this for my own sake, <laughs> to really get a sense of how you're managing. It's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, for me, pl I realized that planning has always made me feel safe. And it's always been, for me, uh, the vehicle of my ambitions. What I mean by that is 
that setting intentions has always been really important for me in terms of like, if I'm in a place, whether it be emotionally or professionally or financially, that, that, that it's not a good place. I think, okay, my intention is to go there and I make a plan and I see it on the horizon. And I think about the steps I need to take to get there. And so on the deepest level, planning has been actually an, an incredibly healing act for me. It's also been just, I get pleasure from knowing the logistics of everything. I'm a detailed person. I love maybe that sense of control that I have when I look at my calendar and go, okay, we're going to do this in June and that in July and that in August. And this time next year, we'll be here, you know, and I love that. It gives me a kind of, uh, Pleasure. I mean, I even joke with my husband, our long running argument. So let's see, we've met, we met in 1995. So I guess it'll be 25 years since we met this fall, this September. My running joke with him, you know, we've been fighting for for decades about him not putting things on the calendar and not being a planner. (laughs) And then every once in a while, he'll do it like he'll put something on the calendar. And I'm like, that is the sexiest thing Mm. you ever did for me. Yeah. Yeah, I totally That's my get love it. language. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what about you? Well, I I know that you're a list maker and you're not only a list yeah. maker but you make sublists to your lists and I do the same thing. And I am so I don't know what the word would be. Um attached to my calendar. I have a paper calendar. I've had a paper calendar for decades. Mm-hmm. And my dad used to send me the American Express book calendar which I used to use. And then he passed away, so I needed another vehicle. And so I just have this little paper calendar. It's actually little, but it's two-year calendar. And I am attached to this thing. It goes with me everywhere. So I didn't even answer your question. So how am I dealing with it? Um, The first thing, I was kind of in denial, like a lot of people. What I decided is the pandemic would last about eight weeks. Mm. At least its impact on my life would be, you know, that was the first thing. Like, okay, everything is canceled in March and April and maybe May, but June and July and August are totally on, right? And then as the weeks passed and I realized, oh my gosh, you know, and I finally, you know, I had to do the thing I have many times advised others to do when they feel powerless is to surrender and to accept. That's about accepting what's true, accepting what's true really one of the most radical acts of my life. And I think any life, even if what's true, isn't what you want to be true. Right. Because then you can work from a place of reality rather than delusion. And so I'm trying to accept it and let go of uh, the future, or at least my sense of knowing what's going to happen in the future. Let's go into the past a little bit. I'd love to talk to you a little bit about how you have navigated the arc of your life. You were born, Cheryl Nyland, in Spangler, Pennsylvania, yeah, and moved to Shaska, Minnesota when you were six years old. Shortly thereafter, your parents got divorced. And in addition to the time after your mother died, it seems as if those years were some of the darkest years of your life. Mm-hmm. Did you realize it at the time? Gosh, that's such a great question. I, I did. I did realize it to the extent that a child can, which is somewhat limited. I was born into a house of really extremes. On one hand, I had this mother who was very loving and very kind hearted and warm and optimistic. And, and in so many ways communicated to me and my 
my older, I have an older sister who's three years older and a younger brother who's about three years younger. And she always communicated to us that sense of, of wonder and love and light and, and the beautiful things. But we were living in a house that was, you know, frankly terrifying. My father was violent and abusive. He was emotionally abusive to all of us. He was physically violent to my mother to an extreme degree. And we were terrified of him. And also, you know, we witnessed, I witnessed, my brother and sister and I all witnessed horrifying things, things that I, that I never witnessed beyond that, you know, as an adult. Uh, I mean, I, as, so as a little child, my first, some of the first things I saw were really, you know, my mother being beat, beaten by my father, uh, my mother almost being killed before my eyes by my father, my mother being raped by my father. And so my memory, my perception of what I understood in those years is definitely um, one of fear and, and sorrow and terror and darkness. But because that was my life, it wasn't really until my mother finally escaped my dad that I realized, oh, this is what happiness is. This is how it should be. So, yeah, I mean, I really think I had these kind of two childhoods, really three childhoods. But the first one was terror and darkness and violence and abuse. And the second one was my mom is a single mom. And um, we were very poor. We were poor with my dad, too. But really living in poverty with a single mom and three kids and a lot of chaos and disarray, but but also a lot of light and joy and and fun and no longer being under the, the the sort of weight of that fear that you have when you live with somebody who's abusive. I I completely understand um in many ways I had a lot of similar experiences. So a lot of the questions I'm going to ask you are really not only for my listeners' benefit, but also for my own in terms of really being so curious about how somebody can emerge from that kind of darkness to be able to say, this is happiness. You know, this is happiness. Mm -hmm. You've written this about what a father's role is in his children's life. The father's job is to teach his children how to be warriors, mm -hmm. to give them the confidence to get on the horse, to ride into battle when it's necessary to do so. If you don't get that from your father, you have to teach yourself. Mm. That so resonated with me. What do you think you had to teach yourself? Like, what is the biggest thing you think you had to teach yourself? Oh, you don't ask little questions, do you? You ask big questions. <laughs> big questions. <laughs> Sorry. Big questions. Um, you know, I think that the biggest thing is that I'm okay in this world. I have the strength and the courage and the resilience and the heart to be okay, to be safe within myself. And I think that that's what I mean when I said to be a warrior. I mean, I think we very often think of this in terms of battle. And 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 years ago, I wrote I wrote about this in Wild too. But um, so right after my mom died, I was living in Minneapolis. I was 22, and a friend of mine gave me a gift certificate to see an astrologer. And I was like, okay, well, I don't know. Like, ah, what's this astrology stuff, you know? And, um, but I thought, okay, I'll go. And I went and I talked to this woman, Pat Kaluza, and she 
had this like hippie sort of place in Minneapolis and she read my birth chart. And it was astounding and amazing. And one of the things she said to me, she kept going to the father. She kept saying, your father, he's a Vietnam vet or he's troubled or he's, you know, and I kept saying like, oh, yeah, my father's not in my life. He's nothing. He's nothing. He's not anything. And she said to me, well, you were wounded. Your father was wounded. And when you you have a parent who's wounded and who hasn't healed his or her wounds, you, you as the child, you're wounded in the same place. And so you're going to have to heal that wound. And the way she talked to me about it is that there will be times in your life that you need to ride into battle for yourself and you need to teach yourself how to do that. And, you know, I would say that that extends beyond necessarily the father. I think that, you know, if we didn't get that essential sense of self-worth from both parents, we need to reckon with that in our adult lives. And so with my father... I had to heal many things, but, but the most, the biggest one you asked what the most important one, I think it was that sense is that, that I'm secure and safe in the world and that I'm strong enough to face anything really. And to really step into that knowledge, not that you'll be like always brave or always do the right thing or always accept what's happening, uh, in a, in a sort of graceful way or courageous way, but that at my deepest, deepest, deepest place within me, I believe in the power of my own resilience and ability to survive and persist. And I think that's what the parents give us if they love us well and they love us right. And if we don't get that, we have to find it ourselves in the world. I think that as I was rereading wild. And as I, I watched the movie again, too, which was really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, I also got this sense that the that your journey was one of finding out if you could rely on yourself, if you could take care of yourself. Pretty extreme <laughs> way of yeah. testing yourself. But, but I got the sense that that ability to do that was was also underneath everything else that you were doing. I think so too. And, you know, I think I, I want to say too, like, I think that we all need to do that. Um, You know, obviously somebody like me who had a father who was abusive and not, you know, not the father that anyone wants. And then, and then a mother who died. Um, I was really an orphan and, uh, you know, I had to go and find those things um, as you say. And yet I think part of maybe the, the human journey is that like that I even think of my own kids, teenagers right now who are loved and secure and living in a very happy home and have wonderful lives. And yet what I know about them is that, that part of their journey is going to be finding their way and finding their strength and finding their courage and, and also finding their path, you know, and all of those things are made more difficult when we have difficult parents or dead parents or abusive parents, but they're all, it's part of what we have to do as humans. And, and that's why, you know, I think so often it wasn't until after I actually wrote wild that I understood what I had done on that hike is that I'd given myself my own rite of passage, you know, that I'd said like, you have to go test yourself to see who you are. And, and that's those rituals of rites of passage are what, what we've done as humans throughout all time across every culture and, you know, continent and so on and so forth. We don't do that so much anymore. And I think it's a loss. I think most of us would benefit from 
being asked to find out who we really are by being put in uncomfortable circumstances or challenging circumstances. When I was doing my research on your childhood and adolescence, I came across a couple of little facts that really were wonderfully surprising. Um, I know <laughs> that when you were 13, you moved to Aitken County. It was very yeah. rural. You lived in a house with your mom and your stepfather. Um, they built the house. And for many years, the house didn't have electricity or running water, didn't have indoor plumbing until after you went to college. But despite all of this, Cheryl Strayed, you were a high school cheerleader and the homecoming queen. <laughs> And so you must, you were an overachiever from like day one. Uh-huh. I was. <laughs> I was. So let me explain. My stepfather, uh, who was a carpenter, he was seven years younger than my mom. They, they married uh, when I was like 11. And he was working under the table uh, for this roofing contractor. And it was the middle of the winter in Minnesota. There was ice on the roof. He slid off the roof and broke his back. And as I said, we were always flat broke. And he was injured and out of work for more than a year. And my mom at the time was working as an administrative assistant for the like the, the small town attorney in Chaska, Minnesota. And he said, you know, I'll, I'll represent you pro bono. It's not fair. Um, because my stepfather was working under the table, his boss said, oh, no, I don't need to pay you anything. So by the end of the year, they got a $12,000 check. That was the payment for a broken back <laughs> back in 1980 or so. And my mom said, you know, this is our only chance we'll ever have our own home that we own. And let's not buy a home. Let's buy land. So they went to northern Minnesota. Yeah. And we moved to 40 acres of land. We lived really in a tar paper shack, a uh, one room tar paper shack for the first six months. And we built the house ourselves. And it was a lot of work and it was incredibly difficult. And I was a teenager and I wanted to be pretty and popular and not associated with going to the bathroom in an outhouse or taking a bath in a pond, which is what I did, or taking a bath in a bucket, <laughs> which is what I did. So yeah, my, my rebellion in my teen years was to seem to be a version of myself that, that, that I wanted to project a sense of success and grace and togetherness. And, and I, you know, I wanted to be popular because to be popular is to be loved. I wanted people to love me. Now let's talk a little bit about books because you've written about how, as you were growing up, books were your religion and mm. you've cited the experience of reading Dalton Trumbo's novel, Johnny Got His Gun as a book that first exposed you to the power of inhabiting the life of another human. Yeah. What was that like for you? How did, how did that infuse who you were? Johnny Got His Gun, Dalton Trumbo, really, really powerfully important book. I think I was about 14 when I read it. And it's just, you know, you're inside the, the mind of a man who's had, you know, been deeply injured in the war and lost his limbs. And he's, you know, you're just living in his head and, and, and having his memories and his delusions and his, his sorrows and his rages. And you're, you're right there inside of him. And I think it was this maybe the first book that the material was so utterly dark and painful and true that it was the, it was the first time that I understood what war was, what grief was, you know, I'd learned about things from a distance and what that novel taught me is how you can 
inhabit an experience that is so not your own. And, and, you know, I loved books long before that, but that was the first time I stepped into one and thought, this is a kind of magic, if you will. This is a kind of portal that, that I guess I've been longing to enter uh, for a long time. Another piece of this that goes way back is always as a young child, I, I always wanted to know what was happening inside of other people's minds? Like, really? Like, what did they really feel? What did they really think? What was their actual experience of being human? And so in, in Dalton Trumbo's book, I was like, wow, I've finally been let in to that, mm-hmm. to that secret. You also started working at 13. You had a variety yeah. of jobs. You were a janitor's assistant at your high school, waxing floors. You were a waitress at the Dairy Queen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand you can put a curl on a t- on the top of a soft serve ice cream cone like a pro. Of course. I worked there. So yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Growing up poor, what you quickly realize is if you ever want anything, you have to earn the money yourself. Because even though my mom provided for us to the best of her abilities, you know, I wanted things like brand name shoes or, or Levi jeans. Like we would go to Kmart and at the beginning of the school year and we'd each get like a certain amount of money we could spend. And then that was it. And I was like, I don't want to buy, I want to wear the brands, you know, and my mom would say, I can't afford it. So as soon as I could, you know, I babysat before that, but, but honestly, as soon as I could, I got myself a job. And, um, uh, as I was like 13 and a half, I sort of fudged my age. I think you had to be 14 to actually work, but by 13, I worked as a, a full-time job as a janitor's assistant in in my school, cleaning the books, the, the shelves and the drawers and the desk, getting gum off of things and painting. It was through this program for low-income kids. You know, I worked and I earned my money and I bought my stuff. That's That was part of the whole plan, you know, uh, that I would get it myself if it couldn't be provided for me. Sometimes I... I talk to my peers who were like going to camp or going to Paris or whatever. And I, I envy them. And yet I also think, wow, uh, the best education I ever had was being a janitor in my high school and then going from that job straight to my job at the Dairy Queen. And I did that all summer and um, they were minimum wage jobs, but but they were the first lesson I had in really how to be self-sufficient and making it happen, like not expecting others to make it happen for you. And and I I, I treasure that. Like, I think I learned more doing that than I would have uh, going to a lovely summer camp. But, you know, we all learned, we all find our way. I read that it never occurred to you to attend college outside of Minnesota, and you only applied to one school, the University of St. Thomas and St. Paul. How come? How come it didn't occur to you that you could go out outside of Minnesota? It never occurred to me, it absolutely never occurred to me that it was possible to leave my state to go to college. Like, to me, the furthest, uh, even going to college seemed like going a very far way. And the reason I didn't know to apply to more than one is because nobody told me. I wasn't folded into anyone's arms when it came to like, well, let's talk about college. Let's talk about your options. Let's talk about the process. I figured out by reading something um, that I had to take the ACT test. Nobody talked to me about it. I paid for it myself. I drove myself there. I took the test. I didn't study for it because I was told you can't study for that test. You just go and it's like an aptitude test. 
I don't know what score I got because it didn't even matter to me. I just <laughs> took the test, did my best. And I went to, I, I put in my application to one school and, and I applied to this one school because it was a small school. I was overwhelmed of thinking like going to like the University of Minnesota, it just seemed too big. So yeah, you know, I look back at it and think, what was I thinking? And all I can say is, I just didn't have that information available. And, And I think we think this is so unique. But it's not. I mean, it's the reality for a lot of kids living in poverty, that they don't know the way to college. For your sophomore year, you transferred to the University of Minnesota and Minneapolis, and you studied English and women's studies. What did you think you wanted to do professionally at that point? As a poor kid getting an education, the first goal, and really at first, the only goal was like, you get a job so you can make money. And I first thought that the only path to that would be journalism. So when I was a freshman, I majored in journalism. And when I transferred to the University of Minnesota, I was like, journalism. But I quick I took a class uh, really in that first year or so with Michael Dennis Brown, the poet Michael Dennis Brown. And my eyes, I just, everything, poo, you know, absolutely exploded. And I thought, I, I have to trust this. I have to. You know, I, I I thought that I could sort of funnel my my desire to write into the channel of journalism because it's the job, you know, that, that you can actually get paid to write. But I don't want to do that. Like, I want to really put all of my heart and my faith in, in creative writing. So I switched majors and became an English major. And what I thought I'd do with that is um, become a great American writer. That's what I thought I'd do with it. I was absolutely relentlessly, ruthlessly committed to following through and being, you know, just really, really, you know, holding hard onto that thread that was my writing and doing it and doing it and doing it until I succeeded. And, you know, I, it's funny, I, as I say these words, you know, the, the, the female in me, (laughs) the woman who is raised as a girl. It's like, oh, don't say that. Don't say you want to be a great American writer because that seems cocky or that you're bragging or, but I'll tell you like, that's the thing that got me through is that, that like, again, the intention, the plan, the ambition, if I sort of dithered around and said, well, you know, I hope that this turns out and I hope I can, you know, publish a story. Like I would never, ever, ever be talking to you right now. Yeah, and it reminds me of of that little mantra you had while you were on your hike. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I will not be afraid. Yeah. Well, and of course, and of course, when did I say I'm not afraid? When, when I was. Afraid. Yeah. And you know, even to this day, like writing is so hard for me. It's so hard for me. I still have to say, Cheryl, you can do this. You're going to do this, and you are not going to give up. You're not going to be second. You're going to go. You're going to you know, (laughs) go all the way to the finish line. In March of 1991, when your mom was 45, you were 22, your mom died of cancer. And you've said that your mother's death was in many ways um, your genesis story and the start of what you called your wild years. And you've said that for you using drugs or having a lot of sex or any sort of reckless behavior was about love was about trying to find love in this weird way, trying to show the world this woman's life meant so much that I'm going to ruin mine to honor her. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you about that destructive thing 
that we do. Why do you think we hurt ourselves when we're hurt? Mm. Wow. Again, you you with the big questions, Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of want to say I'm sorry, but I'm like sorry, not sorry. It's so it's so it's so deep and so big that the, the and layered the answers. Why do we hurt ourselves when we're suffering? Why do we self-destruct when yeah, when we feel like we've been ruined? Um I think it's a couple of things. I think one of the things is it's a signal. It's a signal to the people around us that we're saying, help me. Even if we, with our words are saying like, oh no, I'm fine. Just leave me alone. I mean, and in so many ways, that's, you know, when, when you turn to drugs, for example, you know, that's a way of, of pushing others away from you. Right. And yet what I was so clearly trying to do, I can see is to be like, help me, help me, help me. And it's also a kind of test. So it's a signal. I need help. It's a test. Is there anyone out there who loves me enough to help me? I also think in my case, there was this sort of division within me or this polarity that was the, that's almost like, it's almost like mythic in its, you know, when I think about it and when I interpret it this way, is like the mother, the the good mother who's been taken from me and the, and the bad father, the dark father who abandoned me. You know, if I can't be the the woman my mother raised me to be, that ambitious, generous, life you know, light filled person, maybe I can be the the junk, the pile of shit, the darkness that my father nurtured in me. There was something that I had to figure out about those primal relationships um, that I had to rage against and heal and understand and revise. And I think that a lot of us um, have to do that. You know, I think that a lot of people who are suffering and certainly people who've written to me as sugar, you know, they have a problem. They write with the problem, right? They're like, this is my question. This is my thing. But really the problem is, is that deep, deep river that's flowing beneath all the troubles that, that subterranean channel um, that, uh, that is your parents, that is those early stories you received your losses and your gains and your wounds and your sorrows that you have to, you have to heal them. And sometimes, you know, healing is an ugly thing. Sometimes healing is destruction. Sometimes healing is turning away. Sometimes healing is a kind of rage and anger, you know? And I think that for me, it was just like, I had to pass through everything. So the the, the image that always comes to mind to me is one of total destruction when I saw that I was going to lose everything after my mom died, and I did, my family also really fell apart and was lost. When I understood that that was what was going to happen and that I couldn't make it not happen, that's when I really turned to heroin. That's when I was like, okay, if if the house is going to burn down, I'm going to go, like the, the piece of this that in some ways I can have control over is I'm going to actually burn the whole, the whole, you know, the whole land down, like the whole homestead. The hard thing about that is, of course, some people stay there. They get right. lost there. They're walking through the the ashes forever, and and luck. And I'm I'm so grateful that that wasn't my fate. You know that that I had to do that stuff in order to realize that um, that I wasn't the person my father raised me to be. My father didn't raise me. I was the person my mother raised me to be, 
And the best thing I could do, and this is why I said that so much of that stuff was about love, is I realized like I was trying to show the world, listen, this amazing woman is gone and I am suffering. I wanted to, you know, with my own life, demonstrate how 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 gigantic that loss was. And what I realized is the only way I could do that, the absolute only way I could do that was to, to make good on my intentions, to make good on my ambitions, to be the woman my mother raised me to be, as I said in Wild, um, to become, to become. It's interesting you brought her to life through your words and, you know, she brought you to life through her life. It's a really nice symmetry there. It's crazy. You know, it's, I lost her. I was the same age when she died as she was when she was pregnant with me. So I lost her at the same age that I, that I came into her life. Right. You know, I wish that I, I wish that I didn't have to go into the darkness, but you know, I was always trying to move in the, in the direction of love. And I, I felt so alone in my grief. And then when I wrote about it and told the truth about it, how savage it was, I felt like, okay, everyone's going to think I'm crazy. But instead what everyone thought was me too. To this day, you know, to this day, really now, you know, hundreds of people, hundreds of thousands of people around the world, maybe millions of people around the world are saying, I know how you feel because I felt that way too. And, and I'm suddenly not alone in my grief. Yeah. And I'm always shocked by that. I am very grateful looking back on my life. And maybe this is synthesized happiness. I'm not entirely sure in, in terms of what it has given me in terms of my ambition or my um, creativity or even just my sense of the world. But I also deeply, deeply regret the pain that I caused others with my own self-destructiveness. And, and that's one of the biggest regrets that I have, you know, what, what I put other people through in that journey to be who I am and where I am now. Um, but I also know that I, I couldn't have survived in many ways without that destructiveness and that testing of, of who I was as I revised myself, so to speak. Yeah. Do you think that part of that revision for you was to change your name? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was born Cheryl Nyland, as you said, and then I got married young. I was Cheryl Nyland Liddig. We, we both hyphenated our names and because we were trying to be radical and feminist and cool. <laughs> which it was a weird thing to do back then. And so, yeah, when I got divorced right before I went to hike on the Pacific Crest Trail in uh, 1995, I was getting divorced in like 94, 95. I realized that, yeah, so I had to set my life on a new course, which was really the old course, which was the course, you know, way back, you know, when I was like hiding Jane Eyre in 10th grade or whatever, you know, those plans for myself. I took a little detour, uh, did some other things. And then I was like, okay, this is, you know, life. My mother's dead. My first marriage is over this man I loved, but it got married too young and I'm an orphan and I need to make my life. I'm going to make my life. And part of that, obviously for a writer is about language and Cheryl Nyland just didn't feel like me. And so I came up with my own last name, Cheryl Strayed, which is so funny to me now. So I've been Cheryl Strayed longer than I was anything else now. I'm 51. People still say like, oh, but Cheryl Strayed's not your real name. And I'm like, Cheryl Strayed is the realest name I ever had. So you talked about your hike along the Pacific Crest Trail. You were 26 when you embarked on this solo three-month, 1,100-mile hike. 
If you knew that there were people listening who are considering taking the same hike, what would you share with them? What would you tell them? What advice might you give them? Well, absolutely go. If you have any, whether it's the same hike as mine or any long hike, if you have any desire to do this, do it. Because it is walking, especially walking a long way for many days on end, day after day, it's it's uh it's a deeply deeply uh, challenging thing. So you you get you you gain your sense of your own strength and your own ability to endure difficulty, uh, monotony, uh, pain, and of course, what happens on the outside, one foot in front of the other, in front of the other, also happens on the inside. That you know, it turns out for me, you know, this the way to heal anything is to keep going. And to keep going with humility and faith and a sense of optimism, even when it looks and feels really hard. And, you know, I just, I love this idea of the body teaching us what, what the soul and the spirit and the heart needs to know. And that's what happens on a long walk. That's, that's exactly what happens on a long walk. I mean, I can't say enough what, what a powerfully humbling and healing act that was. And it seems unimaginable to me to consider hiking 1,100 miles in near solitude without a phone on the entire, well, the phone off the entire time. I mean, it's just not even comprehensible. What would people say? Well, and that's really, this was 1995. And I, I didn't realize until, you know, I was sort of midway through wild that I realized, oh, I'm, I'm actually writing a kind of historical memoir. Right. About a world that is no longer, that a, that a world that is now past, that our experience of the wilderness is now one where, first of all, we can just research everything online. You know, where does that trail begin and end? Where's the water? Where's the, Google you know, maps, I had, right? you know, and that was one of, <laughs> one of the things. And of course, in, in Wild, I did make comic hay of like unpreparedness or whatever. But the other piece of this I, I want to say is that I prepared to the extent that I could that it there wasn't the internet. You know, I went to the Minneapolis Public Library and said, you know, what books do you have on the Pacific Crest Trail? And they had one and it was the book I already purchased at REI. It wasn't it wasn't like things were available, you know? You just had to go and see how it was. Yeah, I was absolutely alone. I was the first 8 days of my hike I didn't even see another person. What I learned is that that would be you know, a regular thing, like that I would many, many times go three, four or five days without another seeing another person. There was no way to contact anyone except if I came upon a payphone or if I sent them a letter. Right. I'm, I'm so grateful for that world. <laughs> I mean, I'm so grateful that I took my hike during that time, because I think had I not done that, I would have spent a lot of time tweeting at people. Instagram, and right? Connecting with people. pictures, the fox. I mean... Yeah. And getting feedback from people. Right. And not just sitting in my solitude. I mean, that's the thing about that, that kind of deep solitude is it's just like, it's just you. And there's nothing to do, but reckon with yourself. There's nothing to do, but have that conversation with yourself in your head. There's nothing to do, but allow those memories to emerge. By the time I was finished with my hike, I honestly felt like I had thought about everything I remembered in my whole life, every relationship, every person. What a therapeutic experience. 
Monster was the name of your backpack, which at its heaviest weighed nearly 70 pounds. Even at, the, even at its lightest, it was 50 pounds. And making yourself suffer in a physical way kind of feels like the opposite of fun. Um, and I read that you said <laughs> that the act of remembering your suffering can become pleasure afterwards. And I wanted to know, like, how so? How does that become pleasure? I, I'm such a believer. I call it retrospective fun. Okay. <laughs> right. And and this is the advice, too, I'd give someone wanting to take a long hike, is you just have to, or, or really any kind of journey, you just have to acknowledge that that very often the best things we do are painful and complicated and difficult and exhausting and require us to be out of our comfort zone and to accept difficult things, right? If the journeys we take are just like exactly how we imagined they'd be and planned they'd be and and everything was idyllic and blissful and there was no there was no sort of uh, difficulty, we would be like, yeah, that that was that was fun, but you know, there's there's nothing about it, right? right. There's no texture to it. Yeah, no and grit. <laughs> no grit. And and I think that the the grittier an experience is, the more it teaches us. We never ever ever forget the lessons we learned the hard way. Uh, I began a backpacking novice. I became a backpacking expert. I thought that I couldn't do that, and I did. I over and over and over again said to myself, "I can't go on. I can't." And I always did. And then that becomes part of who you are. It becomes part of the story you tell yourself. So then, you know, 10 years later, you're in labor, as I was trying to give birth to my 11 pound baby boy. And I was thinking, I can't do this. And I, what the, what the deepest voice in me said, you know, you can, you know, you can. Nine days after your hike and a few days after your 27th birthday, you met your husband through someone who came to the yard sale you had selling your hiking gear to raise a little bit of money to live on. Um, several years later, you married him. You had two children. Do you think that this sort of new life, big quotes, was the gift you got at the end of a long struggle? Do you think it, it was just luck? Tell, tell me about how you view that sort of moment in time where you come back and everything changes. Well, you know, I think it's it's a combination of things, right? Like luck is always luck is always a factor in everything. You know, how how do we ever know that we're going to be standing there when that person walks up and you say hello and and then something is born of that, right? How how I think of Brian's life and my life and thinking about how you know, how did our paths ever get to cross? And and of course, a lot of it is that by the time I met Brian, I was okay. You know, I was in a place that I was able to see more clearly again and be more kind to myself and to be truer to my nature and truer to my ambition and my vision. I was doing again what I'm here to do. And when you're doing that and then you meet somebody else who's doing that, it's like really good timing, you know? So in so many ways, it is the gift, you know, getting Brian is the gift of doing all of that wandering and searching and finding. And it's not the end of the story, of course. It's like, it, it wasn't like, well, now I'm just like all great and everything. And and then, you know, 25 years later, we're just here we are in the same place. I mean, we've both struggled and grown and gone through all kinds of things, right? But, you know, to make yourself ready for that kind of relationship. Um, I, I wasn't walking the trail to do that, but that right. was one of the outcomes of it. Yeah. 
You moved to Portland. You got a job waiting tables. You started working full-time writing your first novel, Torch. And you then went to graduate school to Syracuse University and got a Master of Fine Arts in Fiction Writing so you could actually finish the book. Why? What made you decide to do that? What made you feel like that would help you get to that moment that where the, where the book would be finished? Yeah, it was, it was mostly financial and some uh, also just like the logistics of, of giving myself real time to write. So all through my 20s, I was a waitress. I was a youth advocate. I was a vegetable picker in an organic farm. I like I was an EMT. I did all kinds of things. But what I was really doing was writing. That was my real work. And it was I had this big student loan to pay off. It was exhausting always to be just living hand to mouth and struggling financially while trying to write. And And I sort of always thought like, okay, my my first novel will of course be published and done and everything by the time I'm 30. But I so I just thought, okay, as I was approaching 30, I was like, okay, this hasn't been done yet. And here are the reasons why. One is I'm always having to work full time to pay the bills. And two, you know, it's hard to have that kind of time and focus when you're working full time. So graduate school kind of solved that problem for me. And I only looked into, I only applied to graduate schools that, um, you know, with the idea that I would only go if I were offered a full a full fellowship or scholarship and tuition remission and that it wouldn't put me further in student loan debt. Torch was published in 2006. At that time, you had two children under the age of two, 18 months apart. Uh, you started writing Wild in 2008, 13 years after you completed the hike. Initially, you thought it would be a collection of essays, um, your second book. What What changed? Yeah, well, you know, the reason I thought it would be a collection of essays is I thought there is no way in hell that I can write a book while having two little babies and being in financial stress and, you know, all of this. I just thought I can't write another book. And what happened is I started writing and then it went on and on and on and on. And I was like, oh, I have a bigger story to tell. And and really... I didn't know that until I was doing the writing because I found the bigger story when I was writing. And and by the bigger story, I mean the story that exceeds the kind of like, oh, here's, you know, here's my interesting journey or here's the big loss I suffered, you know, that it that I knew that I needed to find a universal thread. That the my journey and my loss and my experience would be had the potential to be expressed in a way that other people would see themselves in it. And it took some writing for me to to figure out how to do that or to figure out that that was there. You said that being a memoirist is about learning how to re-enter previous versions of yourself. Yeah. How do you go back into that previous version while still maintaining who you are? Well, you know, you enter the magic of writing. That's that's what's so cool about it is. So what I mean by that is this, is the only way for me to write about my real heartbreak over the decision to end my first marriage is to abandon the woman I am now who says, oh my gosh, I was too young to get married and he was great and everything, but it's a good thing we broke up because now we're both married to other people and we're happy, you know? So leave that person at the door and and start writing your way into the person who was in love with this man, truly, and who also felt like she could not stay with him, who had to break his heart and her own in order to live the life that she, for whatever inexplicable reason, that was still kind of um, 
you know, beyond her explanation, had to trust herself to do that. And so I went in and re-inhabited that. And, and as I was writing, for example, that scene in, in Wild, where my husband and I are deciding to get divorced, and then we get divorced and we're saying goodbye to each other. You know, I was just sobbing as I was writing it. Mm. And even though it's actually not sad, like it's actually not sad to me now. It's a memory of sadness that I that I re-inhabited. This was really made alive to me. Um, I was on the set a lot when we were making the movie. So I was there like every day and, you know, really involved in everything. And there's this scene in the movie and in the book where me and my ex-husband, we've just mailed off, you know, our divorce papers and we're standing on the street and we're talking to each other and crying and embracing for the last time. And it's very emotional in the book. I'm crying, you know, I'm like, it's sad. And then, you know, I'm standing there with Reese Witherspoon right before she's going to walk into the street with Thomas Sadowski, who plays my ex-husband, and they're going to begin shooting this scene. And she suddenly looks at me and she just, Reese just starts sobbing. She was getting ready for that scene. And they, they go into the street and they shoot this. And I'm standing next to the director. I'm watching this on the camera. And I noticed that some people on the crew were kind of gathered around me. And a couple of them sort of put their hand on my back and put their hand on my shoulder to like comfort me. Wow. And I thought, oh, okay. I, 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 it was so clear, crystal clear to me because I was watching that scene and I wasn't crying because it's not sad anymore. But when I watched the scene of my mom dying, I cried. Oh, that because it's still can, sad. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that one thing isn't sad and one thing is. It means that, that there are different kinds of sorrow and some of them are sorrow, are sad in the moment, and others are sad forever. And, you know, so I think that's a really important thing that I try to remember still in my life, that it's like, is this a, a sorrow that I'm going to carry with me forever? Or is it a sorrow that is like a crucible, and I have to endure it, and then I will be better for it? That I'm, you know, that's what I, when I wrote as Sugar, you've got to be brave enough to break your own heart. I was talking about exactly that thing where, you know, I had to make a decision that caused me and another person pain but I'm better for it. And it's not sad anymore. It was, it was actually the, the golden key that opened the door to, to my liberation. And there was loss in that, but, but there was more gain, you know, it became a gift in the end. Like very often, I think how memoir writing is almost like the process of therapy, right? Where you go back there and you say, well, who was that person? And why did she do this and think this and love these people and lead these people? And there's always an answer if you're willing to, dig for it. While you were working on Wild, you also started writing your column, Dear Sugar, for The Rumpus. You were mentoring students at the Attic Institute in Portland. You were teaching workshops at universities, writing for magazines. But you and Brian, your husband, who's a documentary filmmaker, were, as you put it, epically broke. Um, you were, as they say, the classic starving artists. Yes. Um, and I also thought it was interesting that while you were writing Dear Sugar, you were giving people advice. And in Wild, you weren't. But people have read it that way. And I'm wondering how you feel about that, that whole sort of notion of advice giving. I know you've referred to self-help work as intellectually mushy. Um, <laughs> and 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 I, I think I think that too, but I do think that people look for that in work, even when it's not there for their own needs. 
Yeah. When I was writing Wild, it never occurred to me that anyone would be uh, experience it as inspiring. You know, I, I, I was really just trying to write the truest, rawest, realest story about the, that experience, about my grief, about my finding my way on this long walk, about the experience I had in the wilderness. And so, yeah, people do experience that in a, in a, like, well, what's the message of wild? I'm like, ah, you know, I don't, the message is whatever you think, whatever truths you find in yourself when you read it. That's what I meant when books are by religion is I felt saved by them. Like I felt seen by them. So, you know, to me, I'm always sad, like in airports, there, there, many of these um, kind of little convenience stores and airports will have these little turnstiles that are they're like inspirational or self-help like that that it's in the, and they're never books there's never like novels there there's never you know tiny beautiful things there it's all these very specific things that are very instructive like here's your problem here's what you need to do and i find that the most helpful literature when it comes to like what real self-help is is things like i don't know jane eyre mm-hmm. you know Alice Monroe's short stories. There I am in Alice Monroe's short stories. There I am in Toni Morrison's Beloved. There I am in, you know, Mary Oliver's poems. So yeah, you know, I I, I didn't intend um, for those things to be self-help. And frankly, even Sugar, when, when Tiny Beautiful Things came out, I was like, it was in the self-help section of many bookstores. I was like, what? What? So I think of myself as an accidental self-help writer, because of course, of course, Dear Sugar columns are self-help. And yet what they also are is literature. Yes. I understand you've been at a sort of crossroads now as different opportunities have come your way, weighing the reasons to do it, weighing the reasons not to do it. And you've stated it's not about the number of things on the list. It's about the weight of those things. And almost always you think that the things that mean and matter the most really come down to one question. And that question is, what do you really want to do? And I wanted to see if you could help me understand how to know when something is the thing you really want to do. Oh, gosh. Again, with the hard questions. (laughs) Um, So for me, that deepest wanting, it's not that it's the easiest thing to do. It's, It's the thing about which you feel like I can make, I can create something that feels larger than me if I decide to do this. So if I, if I write a book and not only is it an, a, a deep and true expression of some deep and true things I want to put into the world, if it's not only that, and then it becomes also something that is meaningful to others, that's a big thing to contribute to the world. And I think that for me, that sense of like rightness or a sense of like, if this mission is fulfilled, Will it extend beyond my small little life? Like, I feel that as I feel that as a sort of powerful call. Cheryl, I have two last questions for you. Okay. The first is something that um, I was really heartened to read about. I understand that sandwiches are problematic for you. <laughs> of course they are. Sandwiches are just like chaos you know, machines, right? They're just like, absolutely willy nilly. See, I know you're my sister. I know you that I know you also feel this way. 
Like yeah, the, things I, have to I, be orderly. Absolutely. Every bite has to be perfect. Not only do they have to be orderly. Yes. But that's it. The whole goal of a sandwich for me is to make every bite as much like the, the, the previous bite as possible. Yep. Okay. Uniform. Consistency. Mm-hmm. So you put the, you know, whatever, whatever you're putting on it, it has to be uniformly applied everywhere. Absolutely. Burritos also sometimes have this problem. If people don't do the burrito correctly, yeah, it's just tacos. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So this is my last question. Cheryl, what is the thing you want to do most next? Finish my next book. I I really am ready to do that. Uh, so Wild and Tiny Beautiful Things were published within four months of each other in 2012. And basically, my life was just an absolute you know, like it was just like a volcano, and I was, yeah, you know, movies. I was, and I was Oscars in the movie and, and the yeah. and the play, <laughs> and I was involved in the podcast and the, the public speaking career, and also the kids. You know, during all this time, I yeah, I have mom. these you two know, little kids, kids. You know, and who now are fourteen and sixteen, and I just feel like, wow, okay, I really now I'm ready to go back, go back to that basic, go back to that sit there and write your next book. And so that's what I'm doing. And I really want to do it. And I'm really excited about it. I'm also afraid and doubtful and scared. And I'm all the things I am when I'm writing, which means I'm writing my next book. Ah, can't wait to read it. Cannot wait to read it. Thank you. Cheryl Strayed, thank you so much for joining me today on Design Matters with such an open heart and with so many wonderful things to say. Thank you, Debbie. You are you are a woman after my own heart, I swear. <laughs> we have to meet in real life someday and have sandwiches. Okay? Absolutely. I would love that. I would love that. <laughs> thank you, you my can- dear. This is the 16th year we've been broadcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Special thanks to the sponsor of this episode, Heffler & Co. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hello and welcome to the Women's Football Show. Coming up this week, England actually played a competitive match. Yes, after almost 12 months away, we'll be discussing their friendly with Northern Ireland and hearing from both teams. Uh, We'll also get some reaction from Jill Scott after she earned her 150th cap for her country. And we'll also be looking ahead to Euro 2022 as well. Uh, Plus, uh, we'll look at a return of the WSL as well. Now, Sue Smith is alongside me, as always. And Sue, good to see you. Now, England waited 349 days for that competitive match. You watched it. How did they get on? 
it's been a long time coming, hasn't it? And it's just great to see England back playing. It's okay training and, and playing training matches, but they want to get out there and actually play a game. And, and I just think they can put everything that they've learned in training into practice in that match. And, and the fact that we've seen a few new faces as well was, was great. Yes, we did. Four debutants uh, in that match against Northern Ireland. Now, uh, one player who knows all about uh, playing for the England team is Anita Asante. It is, of course, Anita Asante. Welcome to the programme, Anita. How has lockdown been treating you? Hey, Jess. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I'm doing really well, thanks, considering, you know, the challenges we've had um, this season. It's just been nice to be back with the team and training again. Yeah, I bet. Um, we'll get to uh, what life has been like with, with Aston Villa and the WSL in just a moment. But first, uh, let's talk England, because you watched the match. What did you uh, make of the game? Yeah, it was a dominant performance from England, I thought, you know, especially the first half, um, lots of interchange of movement. And I think Pegarisa would be delighted with the performance and the results. But yeah, very confident and, um, you know, so many attacking threats. And it was great to see Ellen White also get a hat-trick. Now, Sue, this wasn't just a friendly for England. A lot of these players will be hoping to make the Olympic squad, obviously. So how much of a chance was this to impress yeah, it well, was, you know, and, and they needed a game, didn't they? I think, you know, the, the fact that it's been such a long time, um, it's all changed at England at the moment. The fact that Phil Neville's gone now, Heger Risa is, is in interim charge, and I, I just think we were all interested to see how would they do in terms of not just the result, but also the performance and, and how are they going to play. And it was an opportunity to give players debuts, which I think is always is always a good thing in a, in a friendly game. Um, but there's going to be tougher games for England. And this was just an opportunity for, for players to, to stake a claim for future England camps, but with one eye on the Olympics for sure. Yeah, let's hear from that England camp then. Uh, we uh, we spoke to, after the match, uh, England's hat-trick hero and player of the match, Ellen White, and also interim manager, uh, Hega Risa. I think we really put on a good performance. First half, we had the win uh, with us. Uh, didn't let them out almost at all. Uh, keep pushing the line, keep uh, pushing the ball around, switching side. Scoring goals, uh, winning back quickest way when we lose lose the ball, and so I think we did, the performance was excellent. So to play for England again is like I was literally just running around with a smile on my face. Um, it's been a it's been a long time coming. So um, yeah, to play for England, uh, to get my first hat trick, dual to get 150 caps, four debuts, like. Pretty, pretty decent for, for an England game. So, um, and obviously get the win, the clean sheet. So, yeah, really happy. I mean, it must be a multitude of emotions then in that case, because it's been so long since the game. And like you said, there's just so much going on with the squad. Exactly. But, you know, it's, it's all really positive um, and it's exciting. Um, yeah, like you say, we, we haven't played for so long. So there was so much expectation, excitement. Um, and, you know, I think... You know, the whole squad, um, coaching staff, everything, put a lot of work 
in training this week um, and, and, you know, it's starting to come to fruition in the game. Um, so, yeah, really, really delighted with the result and um, really proud that we've, we've got four new kind of debuts made today. Um, and, yeah, we'll, we'll keep mentioning Jill's 150th because it's, it's an incredible achievement um, for, for her and, and for England as well. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about that, because I understand, obviously, you guys have been making her feel special for the last few days as well, haven't you? Yeah, she really she really doesn't like <laughs> she doesn't like us talking about her. So um, but she deserves it. She deserves everything that comes her way. Um, you know, her career career has been phenomenal. The longevity of her career. Um, and I'm really proud to to have been a little bit of part of her journey really with England and obviously Man City and um, yeah I'm just I'm just so proud of her there's definitely more to come um, and I hope everyone sees how much passion desire she has for the game and, and how much she gives for England and how much she loves playing for England so um, yeah she's a, she's a true advocate for for England and um, yeah I'm really really proud of her. Alan you're always the first person to put to talk about the team you're the first person to talk about teammates but it must come on. It must be quite nice for you to turn around, score a hat trick after playing for England again, and just kind of send a little reminder out. Yeah, I'm in great form. I am one of the best in the world at what I do. It's yeah, yeah. You're right. I don't like talking about myself. I like talking about the team. Um, do you know what? It's it's unbelievable um, to get my first hat trick for England. Is is incredible. Um, I'm really proud. Um, I actually missed my husband's birthday on Sunday, so um, they're definitely dedicated to him. Um, you know, taking the match ball home. I'm going to be hugging that all day. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I'm delighted. I'm delighted to, to be part of this squad um, and I'm delighted to be able to contribute on the pitch with goals and I'm, I'm just really enjoying playing football at the moment. Yeah, we had uh, Ellen White on the Women's Football Show a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, Sue? And she said this match would be basically a chance to impress the new boss. And I'm going to say, scoring a hat-trick probably goes some way into impressing uh, the new boss. Uh, now, Anita, Ellen listed the, the many positives from that game for England, but what impressed you most about their performance? Well, considering so many players got a chance to play, um, you know, seeing Ella Toon come in, step up and take a penalty, that's a sign of confidence and maturity. But... I particularly enjoyed watching the interchange between the fullbacks and, and the wingers, you know, the likes of Lucy Bronze and Rachel Daly and Lauren Hemp on the other side and Greenwood. Um, There's so much fluidity in the play and you could really see um, Georgia Stanway and Jill Scott working the pocket space, which I think is going to be a trait of uh, Heger Risa and what she wants to see within this England side. But the patience, you know, the possession play, that's something we want to see from, from England, that they're more controlled in those phases and really trying to create proper goal chances that basically lay it on a plate for players like Ellen White in the box. And you will know, Anita, it's not just uh, the players that contribute to the performance. As Ellen said, there's a lot being done behind the scenes in terms of the backroom staff as well. And they really do help to ensure that the team get these kind of results. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's everyone, you know, the, from the sports scientists and the medical team uh, to the operations, they all play a part in making sure that the girls are as prepared as possible going into games. And that's going to be crucial going into a major tournament because it allows them to specifically focus 
on pitch and you know their own individual preparedness related to you know sleep food and nutrition so you can really see all of these components slowly coming together and you know the real test will be when they play obviously stronger opposition but I think they're in, in a good position and laying out the foundations. As Anita said, Sue, uh, four debutants on show in that match. Uh, Ella Toon, who managed to bag herself a goal, uh, Sandy McKeever, <laughs> Ebony Salmon and Lottie Wuber-Moy. Uh, how do you think they all got on? I just think it was it was great to see that. I thought it was four excellent debuts and they're all playing really well for their respective clubs so they deserved the call up and and you just think they will have learned so much just being in and around the squad working with the likes of, of Jill Scott, Ellen White, Lucy Bronze, Steph Horton you know these experienced players but then to actually get game time I just think that they will have gone home and said I want more I want to do this more I want to play more I want to be a regular starting player so I just wanted to ask Anita who stood out for you because I know you mentioned Ella Toon having the confidence to, to step up and take a penalty which I thought was was fantastic but did any of the others impress you? Yeah absolutely I mean I thought Lucy Bronze was obviously exceptional she's showing her quality and you know you're starting to see her sort of coming back into her best form um you know I thought Hemp had a particularly good game and we know what she's capable of and I think she's got another gear in her to go Hopefully that will come out, you know, she's selected and goes to a major tournament because to have that much speed in the attacking line at the moment is just frightening. Um, so, yeah, I think f from what I saw, those those were my sort of standout players. But in general, I thought it was a good team performance. It was a good team performance. Some very good individual performances there. We have to talk about Ellen White, who missed her husband's birthday uh, to play that match. And so it's just as well. She got a hat trick, really, and made it worth it. Uh, when she was on the show uh, a few weeks back, we spoke about Ellen White's movement. We spoke about how she's adapted her game to find space, basically, in and around the box. And she did that brilliantly against Northern Ireland, it seemed, Anita. Yeah, well, you know, Ellen is a tenacious player. She works hard for, you know, she creates things for herself as well because she works so hard. She capitalised off a Northern Ireland mistake earlier on in the game, and that's what she can do. But she's added that ruthlessness and, you know, in front of goal. Um, she's so clinical, and those are the sorts of opportunities you can't provide a player like Ellen. Um, and she's been in great form for her club, you know, during the season, and you're really seeing how much she's, um, hungry to play for England and she just wants to get more and more goals for her team and you know I'm just excited to see what she's going to do in, in you know in the future as well. Um, now Sue don't get me wrong Ellen's not old but for a top level <laughs> striker being in your 30s people were going to keep asking the question you know how much longer can she continue to impress at that level but if anything she just seems to be getting better and better as she gets older. She really does. And, and and that has to be credit to herself. She's always improving or looking to improve and, and tries to find little ways to, to get better. You spoke about how she she's adapted again because Ellen works so hard for the team. If you watch her off the ball, she's constantly wanting to press. She's constantly, when she gets on the ball, she's wanting to, to move around. And, and I think she's just thought, well, she's probably had a little bit of coaching as well. Get yourself into good positions. Get yourself into goal scoring positions positions and score more goals you're too nice you're doing work for everybody else and now 
now, of course, she still does that work, but she's getting the goals because she's she's probably reduced it a little bit and just added that that little bit of movement. But it's what she does off the field as well, how she looks after herself. When we spoke to her the other week, she was saying, I'm just so boring. She said, I go home, I do my stretches, I do my Pilates, I go to sleep, I do all my recovery, and then I train again. But that's what you have to do to make sure that you are at your absolute peak when you play. And like Anita touched on, she's been brilliant for Manchester City and she's taken that great form into uh, into her England career. Yeah, and you'd expect her to her name to certainly be in the mix uh, for the Olympics, which less than four months away now. We do know, of course, that Hega Risa will be part of the Team GB coaching staff uh, as assistant manager, unless, of course, she impresses enough in the next few weeks uh, to get the top job. But uh, we'll bring you news of who gets that job uh, as we get it in the next few weeks. Uh, now, let's talk about Jill Scott, uh, another uh, fundamental player, shall we say, for this England team. Um, we felt for her on the women's football show because she waited almost a year between earning her 149th cap and her 150th cap because of the coronavirus pandemic. Well, she's finally done it and she's been speaking to Anton Tului. Yeah, I think it's a big sigh of relief, to be honest, after waiting a year for it. Um, and uh, I'm just so overwhelmed that I really am. Like the, the girls did a little presentation to us last night and it was so uncomfortable because I just had to sit there and listen to all these plaudits. And I know people will be like, oh, that must have been so difficult, but it really was. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I can't believe it actually. I can't believe it, but I'm, I'm really, really happy. I got a letter from Prince William um, and he actually handwritten it um, to my house. We've had, it must have been about, oh God, going back, 12 years maybe and I was at an appearance with him and I slipped in five aside and actually kicked him and he remembers it every time I see him like Jill watch them tackles watch them tackles and even in the World Cup 2015 he uh, video called the team and he was like Jill no yellow cards so I think it's great that the the pay um they're taking interest and yeah to get messages like that as I said before I haven't even checked my phone yet to be honest but um yeah it just seems very surreal but Although people will say about my hard work on the pitch, I think the most pleasing thing is when they say that they've maybe met us and I've, I've been nice to them or I've gone that extra mile. And I think that's what means the most to us because I even got a video message off David Beckham and he was always a player that I used to look up to. And although he was fantastic at putting in crosses and playing for England, I always loved how he was with the fans. And that's something that I've always tried to, tried to be like. So to get their messages uh, mean the world to us. And how was it? on the pitch today uh, a good performance but like I said it was just everybody is first thing they want to talk about is you and just and like you said continue that phrase I think I was I had so many feelings going into the game I was probably nervous anxious like I don't know because I just obviously wanted just to to have a good performance as well um, and they always say don't play to the occasion like stick to the process so I was just trying to do that to be honest but I think the performance by the girls was was brilliant there was some standout performances Ellen White Lucy Bronze I thought Georgia Stanway had a great game as well so I think it's just been a good day all round and the four debuts as well I feel bad because I um, forgot about Sandy's um, debut in my interview early earlier so I do apologize to Sandy but yeah great great day all round. So 150 caps means you've been around a fair few camps played a fair few games how does this uh, camp feel under the new management? 
yeah, we've all really enjoyed it. And it's it's been difficult, to be fair, because of um, COVID restrictions and obviously rightly so, because we know we have to keep everybody safe. But we've spent a lot of time in our room, um, a lot of time on Zoom calls and we'll kind of let out for training. And <clears throat> I think the girls were just so appreciative to obviously be here and the FA obviously allowing us to to play this game but yeah the coaches have been been really good Heggy and Rian uh, straight in there very confident and um, they know what they want from us and I think it's worked really well and um, so far obviously it's only been a short camp and we know that you can't change the world in in five days but I think it's a it's definitely a step in the right direction. Football is relentless you don't get much time to reflect so I'm going to ask you a question about what happens next is it <laughs> is it now targeting a place at the Olympics? Yeah, I think that I've I've kind of said that from all season, my decision to go on loan at Everton, um, not only because they were the only team that would take us, but because I um I do want to want to go to the Olympics and I've made no secret of that. So yeah, I'm just gonna I've got two days off from club now, so I'm gonna go home and just kind of take it all in, um, what's happened today and then yeah, I'll just set my targets again of, of what I want to achieve. And first and foremost, that'll be performing for Everton and then hopefully in Olympics. If not, then I know that I've, I've done everything that I can. And I think that's something that I've always prided myself on and I can be proud of that. A truly brilliant uh, achievement from Jill Scott in 150 caps there. Now, Sue, she got a message from David Beckham, Prince William, she must have been pretty disappointed when she got your message come through. Um, but <laughs> how much do you think all this will mean to her? She was being pretty humble in that interview, but this will mean the world to her, won't it? Oh, absolutely. And she is she's so well deserving of this, not only for her fantastic performances for, for many, many years on the field, but what a brilliant person she is. And, you know, when she mentioned, obviously, the COVID restrictions and having to stay in her room, Anita will know this. Jill will absolutely have hated that because she loves visiting everybody's room. I roomed with her once and I never seen her. She was just constantly visiting everyone. She'd just come back for, for sleep time. And that's just because she is, she's such a positive person. She loves to socialise and I'm absolutely delighted for her. Like I say, she deserves all of, of this praise and, and all of this credit that we're giving her but she'll hate it because she's not that type of person straight away you've seen in her interview after the game she she was speaking about the the debutantes and she was speaking about other players that have played well she wanted to take that emphasis uh, away from her but yeah she deserves everything that she gets yeah no her achievements throughout the game are incredible let's just have a look at everything she has done uh, in the game so far uh Sorry, Jill, I hope you don't mind us putting your age, but it just goes to show how long she's been around. Uh, made her debut as a 19-year-old way back in 2006, four World Cups, three Euros. Um, now, Anita, she's not necessarily the player that will make the headlines, but players just seem to love playing alongside her. What does she like to play with? Yeah, I mean, Jill's fantastic. I've played with Jill since I was about 16, 17 years old, so... I know just the, the value she brings to a team and she's hardworking, of course, and you trust her because you know she's got she's got your back on the pitch in both directions, on the ball, off the ball. Um, she's everywhere. But also, I think, like Sue mentioned, it's her personality. She just lifts the morale and the spirit of the team because she's so infectious and she makes everybody laugh and she's always considering the well-being of her teammates and especially, you know, new players coming into that squad. Um, she's such a great leader and she's so experienced. She really helps people to gel. 
into that environment really quickly. Yeah, and, and I suppose lots of young girls, Anita, will be looking at Jill Scott and thinking, well, she's done it. I can do that too. And that's proof again of how important it is to have role models within the game. Um, but when we look at role models, sometimes role models within marginalised communities are much harder to come by at the top of the women's game in particular. Um, if we look at the England women's team currently, Demi Stokes and uh, Nikita Paris are the only regular BAME players within the team. They weren't in the squad this time around. Um, so it meant that Ebony Salmon was the only non-white player in the squad this time around. From your point of view, are black girls being left behind? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, it's unfortunate that Demi Stokes wasn't in this recent squad with her injury and Nikita couldn't travel, obviously, for COVID reasons. But yeah, I think um, the FA have acknowledged now that this is an issue and, you know, we need to provide better access points from girls from disadvantaged groups and, you know, that aren't getting the same level of resources and access to the game. Um, and, and really, that's the, that's the problem. You know, we, we, we know they're out there. We need to find the right pathways that are going to funnel them into, you know, talent pools and elite programs that get them to the highest level of the game. Because, you know, we want to see a more diverse game that brings, you know, lots of different qualities and, and for this England group in the future. Perhaps then marginalised groups within the gender were then, you know, held back as well. So we need an intersectional approach, don't we? We need an approach that looks at not just gender, but race and disability and sexuality as well. Yeah, I mean, football is meant to be, um, you know, the, the barrier breaker that brings communities and people together. So, you know, ultimately, football needs to cast a wider net over an intersection across society. And at the moment, it hasn't managed to do that. And like Sue mentioned, it is, a, it is time probably to review the systems that we have in place and say, where are the gaps? Where, where can we learn and improve and actually start to redirect real energy into pulling in, you know, black and Asian ethnic minority groups into the game because we know they're out there and it's only going to widen, widen the pool of talent uh, across the game. Much more coming from Anita and Sue after the break. We'll also be hearing from the Northern Ireland camp. That's next. Welcome back to the Women's Football Show. Anita Asante and Sue Smith still alongside me. Um, we're, we're talking the international break and, of course, Northern Ireland's friendly with England ended in a 6-0 defeat for them. But uh, for Sue, 43 world ranking places uh, between them and England. They knew it was going to be tough, but what positives will they take away from the game? Well, I think you certainly couldn't question, you know, the, the team's desire or the, the want to win or, or their application. Um, but I, I suppose what you could see is the significant difference in, in fitness levels. You could see that the quality on the ball was, was slightly different. And, and that's due to the environment that, that they play in. You know, the, the majority of these Northern Ireland players, they're not in full-time professional clubs. They're having to manage careers alongside their, their football. And, and some of them couldn't even come along to the game due to, to work commitment. So I think we have to remember that as well. Um, but Northern Ireland have done absolutely brilliant getting themselves into potential playoffs. They could qualify for a major tournament for the, the first time ever, which is fantastic. And I just think they'll have certainly learned a lot from that game, playing against a side like England. And, and that's what you have to do. You have to watch the game, you review it, and then you take that into the, the next game that, that you're, you're going to play in. 
Anita, what's the uh, mindset when you go into a game knowing the opposition is going to be tough, strong, and possibly more advanced than you? Um, I guess from my experience, I think I'm always thinking on, you know, how can you upset a higher ranked team? So a lot of those players would have been focusing on their individual battles, 1v1 across the pitch and seeing ways to nullify the strengths of those individuals during the game. But ultimately, they had a team focus and, you know, they'll be working towards that game plan to help them progress for their playoffs. And, and like Sue mentioned, you know, they're in a different phase of development as a nation. And, you know, they've made history by reaching the playoffs and that's a great achievement in itself. And playing a team like England will only help them continue to develop further into their um, football journey. Now, Sue, some of these players, obviously rivals on the pitch, but friends off of it, um, particularly Rachel Finesse and uh, Jill Scott, who swapped shirts uh, at the end of the match. They've known each other for years, haven't they? They have, and, and that was such a, a nice touch at the end of the game. They obviously played together when they were at Sunderland in their, their younger years, and then they played against each other for, for many, many years. And I actually seen there was an interview with Jill Scott, and they said, who's going to pick up Rachel Finesse on the, uh, the set pieces because we know how good she is in the air. And I think she said, I'll leave that to Steph Horton. And then I think Steph Horton said exactly the same. We'll leave that to Jill Scott. So they know each other <laughs> so, so well. And, and that's a, a nice little touch, I think, that they they swap shirts. So they certainly weren't friendly on the field, but they're, they're mates off it. That's lovely. Um, and we were speaking about mindset, Sue. Um, and there was a little, I suppose, test done by the Northern Ireland manager, Kenny Shields, to see which of his players were actually up for this England match, wasn't there? Yeah, and it was actually quite interesting how how they did that. So when it come through that Northern Ireland could potentially play England, the manager, Kenny Shields, said, yes, I'm definitely up for it, but I'm going to see what the players think of it. So he got all of the players into a group and, and he sort of said, OK, if, if you want to play against England and you want to learn, go and stand on the penalty spot. And if you think it's a little bit too early go and stand in the centre circle and, and the majority of them wanted to play against England and, and wanted to learn. So so that was that was quite a, an interesting test, I suppose, for the, the players to see if they wanted to, to do that and the majority did. Brilliant. Uh, it shows a lot about the, uh, the mindset of those Northern Ireland players. But I'm wondering if the players that thought that they weren't ready, did they play in that <laughs> match, I wonder? Would they have still got picked? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, now, we know it wasn't all about the scoreline for Northern Ireland. Let's hear from their manager now, Kenny Shields, and some of the players, uh, Rachel Finesse and Marissa Callahan. I think it was a massive test. Um, we no illusions. We know, you know, England have got some of the best players in the world. Um, we knew it was going to be very difficult today, and it was. Um, yes, the weather played a part, but I just think we've got to try and take the small positives out of today. We try to play football at times, and we've got we've got to learn going into the playoff. And you know, if we learn two or three things, like I said earlier on, that boards us well in the playoff, then that's the most important thing. I was disappointed we didn't get enough around their half of the pitch because we lost the toss. They had the gale force wind in their back, and that took away our opportunity to get some confidence. You know, because they were all over us, and we couldn't get out. We couldn't get up the pitch. And then when we had the one in the second half with so many part-time players, we, we'd used up their energy. It was just unfortunate that it went that way. But this game doesn't matter the result. It was just the uh, finding out about each other and the understanding of how we want to play. 
we know we made a we made a few mistakes in the first half and we've handed them goals and we know if you make a mistake a mistake against the top side they are they are going to punish you but that's the one thing Kenny said to us today don't be afraid to make mistakes because we will learn from it we we have to try to continue to do the right things and yes it, I mean England haven't come away with three points today it's a it's a it's a friendly game so you know if we can put their mistakes right in the next game then that's the most important thing yeah like we have so much to look forward to that's what Kenny said at the end um I mean it was so exciting coming into this game we're playing against big household names and you know the England team there were were, were um exchanging jerseys and they had a lot of respect for it I thought and um walking out against England um leading the team is I'm massively proud of that and you know, I've had so many amazing, um, proud moments walking out and, and leading the team out, and um, long may it continue. But yeah, like we, I'm so proud of the girls. I'm so proud of every single one of them. We give 100, percent and that's all you can ask. We've got a, a couple of ways to to play out, and one would maybe be the aerial into me to relieve a bit of pressure, and you know, it's it causes us problems, um, but we've got to solve them problems. And I mean, the playoff. It could be these conditions. So if we learn from that um, and get a bit better and have a few more options, then, you know, we can kick on. Well, as Shills and Furness mentioned there, it was clearly very windy uh, at St George's Park. Uh, but Anita, listening to that, the players uh, won't have liked being on the end of a, of a 6-0 loss, but their ultimate goal is being ready for the playoffs in April. So are they closer to, to being ready, do you think? Well, this will definitely put them in good stead for that. You know, like Rachel Finesse said, they have the right mentality. They know what their personal and their collective goals are moving forwards. They're not going to focus too heavily on the results. They know that this result will actually help them build a bit more resilience as well and and, and figure out how to be slightly harder to beat. Um, but, you know, like the conditions didn't help them either, um, when they tried to play out their build-up phase and play a bit longer, the wind was, you know, holding up the ball a lot. But definitely, lots of lessons for them to to take moving forward. And I, I think this game will put them in good stead for that. Now, see, they've already made history in the fact that they've made it to the playoffs. They obviously want to go that extra step and make it to their first major tournament. But what have you made of how Kenny Shields has developed this team since he came in in 2019? I think he he really has, and and I think. You know, first and foremost, Kenny Shields knows that they are a, a developing side and he's trying to get them to play a, a certain way, which is a different way to how they played previously. And he said at times we may get beat. They were beaten by Norway 6-0. They've obviously been beaten to England 6-0. But they also pick up results. They had two really good draws against Wales. And, and I think when you speak to the players, we've had some of the players on the show and and they've spoke about how they enjoy playing for him. They enjoy that that style of play. They believe in in the process, I suppose. And, and the fact that they've got themselves to a playoff on the cusp of potentially getting to a, a major tournament, I, I think is is fantastic and and you can see they're just getting better and better you can see the belief is getting stronger and stronger and and the confidence of, of these players so yeah I think he's him and his, his coaching staff have, have done a brilliant job and, and the players have adapted to it seamlessly. So who will Northern Ireland's uh, playoff opponents be? Well that hasn't quite yet been decided but let's look at the potential opponents these are all the teams that have made it through to the playoffs the Czech Republic, Portugal, Russia, Switzerland and uh, Ukraine as well. That draw will be made on the 5th of March, so uh, next week. Um, All of those teams, Sue, are countries who have developed 
in recent years. Um, who will Northern Ireland want to avoid? <laughs> yeah, I just think whoever you're going to play at this stage is, is going to be tough. Um, I think who would you maybe want to have? You, maybe Portugal. But like you say, they're, they're all sides that are, they have developed, they have got better and, and improved. So it, it's going to be a difficult test. But going back to how Northern Ireland have developed, looking back at how together they are, they've got a real belief in that squad now. I think they will go into any challenge ready for it and, and prepared for it. Yeah, can't wait to find out who it will be. Um, let's have a look at the teams that have already qualified for Euro 2022. Obviously, England as hosts. There's the Netherlands, uh, the current holders. All of Europe's top 10 teams are present in that mix. Sadly, though, uh, no Scotland or Wales on either because uh, they obviously didn't quite make it through. Um and in that respect, Sue, it just goes to show just how much of an achievement this is for Northern Ireland again. They're making history time and time again. Yeah, they really are. It's a fantastic achievement. And both Scotland and Wales, they'll be hugely disappointed not to have, have qualified. Both teams very capable, both teams with, with excellent players. And they'll be looking to, to bounce back from that. Indeed. Uh, now it's been... A very busy international week on the pitch, but also on social media too. Here's Hannah Wilkes. We've talked about it already on the Women's Football Show, but there has been so much reaction to landmark appearances, hat-tricks and debuts from England's game against Northern Ireland that we've got to bring you some more. Plus, some cheese on a stick. Literally. Let's start then with Jill Scott. The Lioness is, of course, celebrating her 150th cap on social media, and she even got a royal endorsement on Twitter, in addition to the handwritten letter sent to her by the Duke of Cambridge. Teammates and fans were also very vocal, of course, in sending their congratulations, with Alex Greenwood, Carly Telford and Georgia Stanway, just a few of those who got involved. Now, Heggy Reeser has said that the whole squad had a little celebration for Jill prior to the game, which led to football journalist Sophie Lawson pondering what that might have looked like. Now, I've got no idea if cheese and pineapple on a stick is COVID secure or if that was even a part of it, but it does paint quite a nice mental image. Away from Scott, did we mention it was her 150th cap? It was also a big day for Ellen White, who scored her first hat-trick in an England jersey, and she nabbed the match ball as a well-earned souvenir. And after impressive debuts from Ella Toon, Ebony Salmon, Lottie Wubbenmoy and Sandy McIver, all four took to social media to mark the moment. The future is looking pretty bright for England. Now, Scotland may not have qualified for the European Championships, but we're all about positive vibes only at the moment. So we thought we'd give a mention to their 10-0 walloping of Cyprus earlier in the week. Not a bad start to Stuart McLaren's stint as interim boss, and what a way to bounce back from the disappointment of missing out on the Euros. And finally, we love a social media trend here on the Women's Football Show. And this week's comes courtesy of ESPN, who asked a fairly simple question. What is a sporting photo that you'll remember forever? Gets you thinking. But we loved this response from Houston Dash, who were one of the many to retweet it. They cited Christy holding all the beers, .jpg, and it sparked a joyous memory. So we had to dig out the photo in question. It is, of course, Christy Newis cuddling all the bottles as Houston Dash celebrated winning the NWSL Challenge Cup last year. Other drinks are available. 
wonder if she drunk them all herself. Uh, coming up, we'll look ahead to the return of the WSL and Aston Villa's uh, debut season and also Manchester City and Chelsea in the Champions League. Stay with us. Hello there, you're watching the Women's Football Show. Anita Asante and Sue Smith still alongside me. Uh, now it's time to talk Aston Villa. Um, now, Anita, I suppose... Uh, being the debut season in the top flight, you knew it was going to be a difficult season. How have you found it so far? Yeah, it's it's been a challenging season, of course, with COVID as well coming into play. Um, we've had to try and adapt really quickly and get to know each other and the team and, and gel and, and all of that. So that's been part of the challenge, but I'm enjoying it. You know, it's a different um, environment and, you know, lots of hungry young players on our side. Um, and we're just looking, you know, most importantly, to try and stay up this season. Neat, you've played alongside some real legends of the game at different stages of, of your career. How does it feel now that, that you're one of the more experienced ones? You're the ones that the younger players are, are looking up to. Is it a role that, that you enjoy? Yeah, it's a strange one, really, because I still think of myself as, as a 20-something-year-old. <laughs> but, you know, that's not the reality now. I'm one of the senior players and the one, you know, that everyone else is looking up to for support and, and guidance in moments, you know, on and off the pitch. Um, but it's a great position to be in, to have that respect of people around me and that they trust me and they trust my advice. And, you know, they believe that I can contribute um, some of that experience to this group. So, yeah, you're just embracing it and hoping, hoping that it's having a positive effect on the group. You said that Anita's played with some uh, legends in the game there, Sue. Was you talking about yourself? What? <laughs> 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 yeah, nice? come on. No. <laughs> Definitely no, no, not. Of course, of course. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Never mind. Never mind. Uh, now, Anita, you played uh, in the top flight uh, of the women's game a while ago with Arsenal in the early 2000s. And you're now in the top flight with Villa. What have you noticed as being the main differences between what the uh, elite level of the game was like then and what it's like now? Well, massively the, the resources, I would say, you know, where, where we as a team get to train and having the full-time element to the game now, full-time staff, coaching staff, medical teams, all of that, just trying to prepare players and to be the best they can be to perform. You know, back when I was an Arsenal player, we were training twice a week um, during the evenings and, you know, committing um, our time outside of that environment to our training to be the best we could be. So, you know, that's the significant difference. But of course, you know, now our league is so competitive. Um, it's drawing a lot of world-class players to it as well. And the visibility and interest has grown massively. So um, it's it's improving all the time. And you can really see that quality um, has, has really come into the game. Now, we've got to the point of this season um, where the, the, the pandemic last season closed the league down. Let's just take a look at the league table from last season. Um, before everything got shut down. Uh, Chelsea obviously uh, uh, winning the league on points per game. Anita, you were part of that Chelsea title-winning team. But what was it like to, to try and perform under those coronavirus guidelines? Yeah, I mean, it was a challenging time because obviously we didn't know when we would return to normal full training as a squad. We were having to do a lot of group training and we're still preparing like we were going to play matches towards the ends and we, we had no idea if that would happen. 
Um, but generally, I think the spirit of the team and, and the group was really good. We found ways to stay connected and, and keep training as a group. And, you know, we, we put all the hard yards in, you could say, early on in the season to put ourselves in the position that we were in to, to finally uh, claim the title. And Sue, if we have a look at the current table for this season, it's actually very similar when you look at the top four, indeed. Chelsea at the top, City in second. Uh, Arsenal and Manchester United have switched places. But it, it just goes to show you how competitive it is at the top, I guess. Really is. And and the league is competitive this year. I think we've seen results that, that you wouldn't have expected. The, the Brighton beating Chelsea uh, result. Reading beating Manchester United, which maybe wasn't so much of a surprise. But still, you probably would have expected Manchester United to have, have won that game. But we still see those top teams. We still see their... You look at Chelsea, the strength and depth that, that they have at the moment, the fact that they are still competing to, to get the, the quadruple. Manchester City, Man United, all strengthened. Arsenal are always there or thereabouts. So I just wanted to, you know, ask Anita, looking at, at that table, you can see that, you know, both Villa and Birmingham sort of behind schedule a little bit. You've had some games called off. How frustrating has, has that been when you go through all of your, your planning and your preparation, particularly when it's a, a derby game or any game? Um, how frustrating is that when the game gets called off, when you've gone through all of that, that preparation? Yeah, it's, it's massively frustrating, Sue, because everyone is chomping at the bit to get on for game day. That's what we train for. That's what we're always um, you know, striving to be better every day for is, is, is game time. And, and, you know, the postponements kind of affects all the preparation before now, um, including the pre-season. You know, there's a whole plan that goes in place with the sports scientists and, and the trainers to get us in the right position, to be peaking at the right times. Um, and it just kind of disrupts the momentum that you build as a team when you're, you're you know, you're building that confidence and you're building that rhythm in, in playing What's been the big difference, uh, Anita, with Marcus Bignot coming in? Um, has he had a, an impact on the way you play and the way you train? Yeah, Marcus coming in is really just adding value to the coaching staff and the players that we have already. You know, he's bringing his experience. He's obviously got had a long career in the women's game before. He's had a lot of success um, prior with Birmingham. And really, you know, he's, he's implementing a lot of his own personal philosophies, intensity, driving the standards within our training group. And, and hopefully that will also translate into match day. You know, we're, we're striving to be a, a team that's harder to beat as well. And um, I think you're going to see that in our games, you know, in, in the upcoming fixtures. And what's the aim for this season? I mean, for us, the, the realistic aim is, is to stay up in this league. Um, it's the first season for Aston Villa. So we're trying to learn all the time, you know, how to improve, how to get results, how to be resilient um, and really get to an understanding of each other as players. Because, we, you know, we've had to bet in some players that have been at the club for a very long time and, and players that have come from all over the world and different parts of the world and, and different levels of experience. You know, many of the girls in the team hadn't even been, you know, full-time professionals prior to now. So there will be a lot of learning that has taken place over the course of this season. And would you say that, that you learn more about yourself as a, as a player when things aren't as easy? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think when you win all the time and, and it's easy, of course, the, 
the morale, the spirit, the confidence, all of that just comes naturally. It's kind of intrinsic to, to the feeling of winning and, and football. But when you're losing, that's a real test of your character, the mentality as well, and, and, and that strength of resilience to sort of ride that out and, and just keep focused on, on the, the plan, you know, focus on your personal goals, our collective goals, and not to get detracted by the things that can sometimes sink your confidence um, or cause that kind of doubt and things like that. Um, and I think, you know, everyone's really managed all the obstacles that we've had because obviously Corona has played a part in that and that's not something we can control. So the focus always has to be on the things that we personally and collectively can control. Let's just take a look at uh, Villa's next uh, next few fixtures. Some tasty ones in there, uh, Anita, <laughs> uh, including Arsenal, Manchester United, Chelsea as well at the end of next month. Um, which ones of those are you looking forward to in particular? Well, you know, it's always it's always nice to play one of my well, two of my previous clubs. Um, yeah, I think you know we know that those are challenging fixtures: Arsenal, Man United, Chelsea, Everton. But all of the games, you know, for us, like I said, our goal is to stay up. Um, so it's about, you know, picking up results where we feel like we, we're really strong and, and also trying to make it as tough as possible for opposition when they come to our grounds. But ultimately, four of those fixtures are away from home. So the pressure is on those teams and we can go up there and, and, and hopefully play with some confidence and, and try to upset some of those bigger teams as well. Now, we're just over halfway through uh, the current season. Have you thought about what you'll be doing next season and what's next for you? Yeah, I mean, that's always uh, part of my mind, you know, the transition phase and sort of doing lots of different things at the moment, obviously some media things, some things behind the scenes with different governing bodies as well and trying to perhaps get board ready. So, yeah, I, I'm really hoping that I can contribute um, on the other side of the pitch and also going to be doing my um, other coaching badges as well. And hopefully we'll have an impact on some of the future generation of players. England manager one day? <laughs> well, I never rule it out, but of course, um, you know, I hope to, to build some experience on the coaching side. And yeah, why not? You know, dream big. It's, it's a great job to have, as you can see by all the people that, are, you know, have recently taken up that position or applied for that position. So yeah, you know, maybe keep your eyes pulled out for the future. I would vote for Neat. Heard it first. Definitely. You heard <laughs> it here first on the Women's Football <laughs> Show, Anita Santi for next England manager. Uh, right, let's have a look at some of the other fixtures uh, taking place this weekend. Uh, across the WSL, uh, both Arsenal and Manchester City are away from home. Um, also got the Champions League. Look at that. Manchester City um, and Chelsea uh, in action against Fiorentina and Atletico Madrid, respectively. It's going to be a busy few days uh, for Man City, Sue, uh, in domestic mm -hmm. and European action. It really is, yeah. They, they play Birmingham away, don't they? And then they have to prepare for their Champions League game against Florentina. And I just think that I look at both Manchester City and Chelsea and they've got a great opportunity to, to progress far into this competition. I know that Emma Hayes has spoke openly about they want to go and they want to win the Champions League. They've got a squad capable of doing that. But like I say, I look at both English sides and I think they have got a great chance of, of progressing through this stage but going even further. 
Yeah, of course. And, and Chelsea have twice got to the semi-final stage. They will be hoping to go one step further uh, this time around. Uh, that's it for the Women's Football Show this week. A big thanks uh, to Anita Asante from Aston Villa uh, for joining us and also uh, to Sue Smith as well. Although, Sue, you're not really a guest. You're, you're part of the furniture now, aren't you? <laughs> Very yeah. true, very yeah. true. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to see you both. Uh, we will be back uh, next week, as always, the Women's Football Show on Friday uh, at six o'clock on Sky Sports Football. Another packed show. Thank you so much for joining us. Do look after yourselves during lockdown. See you next week. Sky Sports. Feel it all. Introducing touch-free payments from PayPal, a safe way for your customers to pay. Simply download the PayPal app and display your own unique QR code for your customers to scan. Whether you're a market seller, I'll take two tomatoes and a poodle pamperer, <laughs> piano tuner, or plumber, signing up to accept touch-free payments for your business is easy. Touch-free QR code payments. Shop safe with PayPal. Welcome to the Just Be a Man podcast. Please note, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Each individual is providing their own independent opinion. Follow, like, subscribe, and comment at Just Be a Man 2020 on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube. Also, expect new content every week on your favorite podcast app including iTunes, Spotify, or Amazon Music Podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and guests of Just Be A Man 2020, and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Five Nights Media, LLC, and its subsidiaries. And good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Stefan DeVille, leading today's discussion. Right now we have Chuck, Wayne. Yo, what's good? And Charles. Hey, what's happening? Not much. Well, you know, we're waiting on Mike to dial in. Um, I understand that uh, he may be in some heavy traffic up there in the Connecticut area. He's so running short. He, he, he running short. Is that what you said? He's running short. Okay. 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 He can't reach the computer. Is that what you said? <laughs> you got to pull out the step stool. Okay. So his chair was, you know, reduced down or something. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. Not okay. me, man. Okay. All right. All right. Well, anyway, <laughs> as you know, uh, if you're late, you're going to be the butt of jokes. That's it. Pun intended. That's it. Yes. All right. So today we're going to talk about something that um, we sat around last Sunday. It was just, you know, having an admin meeting and we were just thinking about, you know, what if we had our own? What if we had what we're going to call tonight our own black utopia? Okay, now, in the past, in, in the United States, we have had our own almost utopias. For example, Seneca Village, which was um, in the heart of Manhattan in, in New York City, was a, a, our own black um, area, predominantly owned by African Americans. And their property was converted, or let's just call it a spade what it is, 
into Central Park. They were kicked out and they created Central Park. And this is in 1858, just before the Civil War. Then let's talk about Wilmington, North Carolina, off the coast of North Carolina, southern portion, an actual vital area to um, shipping. In 1898, there was an uh, insurrection, or also known as a massacre, carried out by uh, white supremacists. As you know, the insurrection has been characterized as a coup d'etat, the violent overthrow of a duly elected governor, government by a group of white supremacists. So once again, after the Civil War, we own a major port city and it was run by us, and we were kicked out. Then we look at Almost 100 years ago this year, um, in May 31st and June uh, 1st of 1921, the Tulsa Race uh, Massacre or the Tulsa Race Riot. Mm -hmm. You know, basically, um, mobs of white residents, many of them deputized and given weapons by city officials, attacked black residents and businesses of the Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It has been called the worst incident of racial violence in American history. The attack carried out on the ground and from private aircraft destroyed more than 35 square blocks of the district. At the time, the wealthiest black community in the United States. So in the past, we have had our own utopia. We've had our own piece of the pie. We've had our almost Wakanda without the planes, hmm. you know, and, and, you know, single minutes, you know, where we were thriving. We weren't bothering anybody. But uh, the notion that we had our own bothered others. Yep, absolutely. So what we want to do today, and we're going to have a free-for-all discussion. Um, I have some questions, but, you know, when we get together as a group of guys, when we don't have scripted questions, I mean, we really talk off the dome, no pun intended. So, you know, just to get, just to get things started, I will throw a question out there, and then, fellas, let's free-for-all. Let's talk about it, you All know. Right. All right, so Chuck, what do you, we need to do to create our own utopia, you know, our own um, potential utopia here in America? Uh, that, that's a loaded question. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of layers to that. I mean, the first and foremost is, I, you, you hear this all the time, you know, we need to come together. Well, that's true. We need to come together. There's strength in numbers. Um, we need to understand our worth as black people, our worth in dollars. Um, he, he, here's a, he, an interesting thing uh, I heard someone say just today, I believe. If we mobilize and decide to come together and we, you know, we, we're out. You said you want us to leave, we're leaving. We got us some land somewhere. We're, we're now mobilized as a people and we're leaving. They're not gonna let us leave. You realize that? Once they real, if we try to take our economic dollars, they're not gonna let us leave. Um, you know, people talk about reparations; they will pay us to stay. You know, um, I mean, and I really believe that. Um, so, you know, the you, what it's going to take for us to, well, in my opinion, what it's going to take for us to um, really, you know, we need to mobilize as a people, and we need to gather our economics. And we need to, um, you know, we, we can do it. We can, we can form our own, I believe. Um, are they going to fight us? Yeah, they're going to fight. They're going to fight. That'll be the biggest fight ever. Um, because that's, that's really their biggest fear. 
is us coming to power or us, you know, rising up. And the, the fear is we're going to rise up and we're going to kill everybody. Well, that's that all. That's happened, always been the fear. Yeah. yeah. But if that hasn't happened in 400 years, I mean, come on. Um, and quite frankly, we think, you know, we're labeled as a violent race. If we were violent, if we were truly as violent as white people say we are, white people would be extinct. That's correct. I mean, it, it just, they'd be extinct. Uh, D.L. Hughley said it best. The, 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 the place that, the, you've heard the saying, well, we, where we reside, the most uh, dangerous place we reside is in the imagination of a white person. You know, and that's that. So we need to come together as a people. We need to, you know, we've always said that is true. We need to do that. Economically, we need to come together. Um, and then there's just a whole host of other things we need to do. Uh, it's not just for now, it's the generations. We need to start things now to in, enforce things for the, you know, generationally. It's, so it's, it's a multi-layered thing, man. It's, it's, and look, I am not scholarly enough to uh, even delve into that, but you know, that's my take on it. Okay. No, I agree. And you, know, you make me think of the Caribbean nations, um, primarily run by us and governed by us. And yeah, they may not be the richest, but they're controlled by us. You know, and what do you think about it, Wayne? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things that come to mind. Um, you know, obviously this is Black History Month, so happy Black History Month to everybody. And so we're kind of using a, a, a timely topic. Um, you know, the Black Utopia is a great thing. It's a great idea. You talked about some islands in the Caribbean and some different places where they are governed and run by themselves. I mean, I mean, this might not be a popular, a popular comment, but but I think we're our own worst enemy. I'm not saying we didn't have trouble. I'm not saying that they didn't take away what we what we had. But yo, remember when you did that crabs in a barrel? It's hard. It's hard for us to to do to do things. Um, I mean, I don't want to bring up bad things, but like, just look at Haiti, right? Haiti overthrew, overthrew their their French rule. That's that's not you know they're not a prosperous country and and, and it's it's purposely right they there were all kinds of sanctions and all kinds of things to prevent them from being for prevent them from being that so so I, I'm not saying that you know they just can't do it I'm saying you know there should be nothing do we want a black utopia absolutely there should be absolutely nothing to stop us will will there be wars and battles and challenges absolutely but. But what what you gonna do? Not do it because it's gonna be wars and challenges and all this other stuff. No, I mean, matter, just, what we, no matter what we do, somebody's going to try to stop us. No doubt. No, no doubt. doubt. I, no doubt. They're gonna put monkey wrenches in the way. They're gonna you know enact emergency legislation. All kinds of stuff. You know. Absolutely. No, no. There's there's no doubt. I'm not. We you know we're on the same page. I'm just saying. Yeah. I, I you know I don't think we should be paralyzed because of what's happened in the past. Uh, that shouldn't that shouldn't mean we can't just you know put a group together today or tomorrow gonna, or whatever. Yeah, I was going to say That's, that doesn't mean we can't make it happen. Yeah, exactly. That's all I'm saying. But there, there actually, um, there's a movement right now taking place um, in Tulsa. Matter of fact, to replicate Black Wall Street, and there's actually an ongoing fundraising effort taking place to raise. I said, you know, somewhere north of ten million dollars to start rebuilding parts of Black Wall Street, basically one business at a time. Um, And then the plan is once you get to one successful um, 
uh, effort than duplicating that effort in other areas of the country. And I think um, Detroit, for example, has literally raised their hand to say that um, they want to be next in line um, or something like that. But I, I think of communities that we already have. I mean, three of us on this podcast reside in Prince George's County, Maryland, which is technically one of the richest counties for black people on the planet. Okay, we're not just talking about the United States, we're talking about worldwide. So is there an opportunity for us to um, expand on what we already have in areas like Prince George's County? There are a number of Black-owned businesses here. There's, there, there are Black politicians here. You know, we have a Black county executive, you know, for example. So I think we have sort of the, um, the baseline uh, from which to build. It's just a matter of putting a concerted effort in place to make it even better than what it is. Granted, you know, we live in the United States, which is a, a racist country, but there are pockets where we can basically be safe to say that they're sort of safe havens for black folks. And the question you know, is, what can we do to expand on that? You know, but Charles, you bring up Prince George's County. <clears throat> County and I live in that middle class. All of us live in a middle class or upper class neighborhood. But you realize that there's only one, two high end car dealerships, and really the only high end car dealership in Prince George's County is Passport BMW. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got to go to Arundel County or to mm-hmm. Montgomery County or to Virginia to you know to get our Porsche, to get our Audi, to get our Land Rover hey, um, service. Don't, yeah, don't mm-hmm. get it twisted. This is still a black county, right? Right, so, but but so we, we, when you talk about that, you're still talking about services. You're talking about um, uh, uh, retailers wanting to buy into a you know predominantly black county and stuff like that. Um, this is what we get. Yeah, but I don't, you know, unless you're in a country like Africa, you know, for example, that's rich on natural resources, and there is a movement in Africa to create the United States of Africa, to unify their currency and everything, you know, so that um, it can be sort of a, a utopia. They can really get their act together. Um, they have a long ways to go yet, but they're at the beginning stages of it. But when we talk about here, um, I don't know if we would be setting ourselves up for failure to believe that we can be 100% self-sufficient and not go outside of our community for anything. I think we just start from where we are. You know, the majority, you know, whatever black businesses we can support within our own community, we start from there and 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 build up. Okay. And wherever it goes, it goes. I think there's an opportunity to create a a, a, a utopia type of of platform, but I don't know that it will be exclusively black you know, so to speak, even, you know, um, Africa, for example, that's rich on natural resources, they, they still deal with um, import exports, you know, from from other countries, right. you know, so they're dealing with people that are non-Africans. And I think to think that we as black people can be just totally and completely self-sufficient, you know, that that's a tall order, unless we're going back to the days where, you know, you know, again, all the farmers are black and, you know, things of that nature. And, you know, part of it is revisiting our history. You know, Stefan, you started out talking about Seneca Village 
and and um, Rosewood and, and Black Wall Street. How did they do it back then? You know, were they complete and totally black with regards to the way they operated? And if so, then let's revisit that history and duplicate what they did. So here's a I'm sorry to cut you off, Seth, but here's just a quick comment is that the reason that in the past they had the ability to do the things that they did is because they was forced to be we were segregated. Mm-hmm. It was forced to be in that space together. So you couldn't go and buy stuff from this person and that person. So you had to find somebody who could do it within. So like now that we are free <laughs> or integrated or whatever. So those, those little mom and pops, they have a hard time, you know, that, that little store in the corner, how's it compete with Walmart? You know what I mean, so I think those comp- those businesses did really well. The doctors, the lawyers, and everything, because like you could only go to a, the black doctors, the only black lawyers, the dentists, accountants, all of that. I mean, again, I'm not saying I got the answers, but I'm just saying that that's what caused it to be like that. Now, once that you can go anywhere and, and deal with anybody you want, that's what people did. You got a little bit of money in your pocket. You went over here because you thought maybe that was better. That's just what it is. I'll tell you, um, to lead into another question, where should it be established? I know right now in Georgia, there's a community, uh, a group of black people bought about 120 acres, and they're trying to replicate a black um, establishment. Where in this country can we really establish something of our own besides, let's say, out west, and they leave us alone? Anybody have an idea? And matter of fact, where would we want to do it? You know, me personally, I want to do it in a warm area, but they're not going to let me do it in Florida. They're not going to give me, you know, they may give me some stuff in Arizona, but, uh, you know, the Native Americans may object to it. They ain't giving you nothing, Steph. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Nobody's giving (laughs) giving us anything. Right, but where where could we establish money-wise? If we had, you know, um, what's his name, Robert Smith? You know, Oprah and Jay-Z, who just made a billion dollars on in uh, champagne. You know, if they put their money together, besides my 10000 that I could put in, where could we establish, you know, our own utopia in America? Do you guys think I, I about don't it? Think, I don't think we'd be able to do it in the United States. There, there, I don't think there's any place in the United States where we would be safe. Uh, the moment, the instant anyone found out that Black people are mobilizing, they're moving together. They bought a plot of land out in the desert, right? You're gonna start seeing people migrate to the desert, okay? Mm-hmm. And they're not gonna look like us. You're gonna, you're gonna find obstacles to us being in the desert of all places. Um, so, I mean, I think our best bet will be outside of the United States, but even with that, moving outside the United States, I hate to keep saying this because I feel so bad saying it, but we're black. People think there's just racism in the United States. There's racism all around the world. They have made it just, you know, um, black is bad, right? Mm -hmm. So if we go anywhere to form our own state, um, we're going to have to export, import, export, all that. Those prices are going to be sky high. They're going to do whatever they can to discourage us. That's my opinion. I don't know all the ins and outs of it. You're absolutely right. um, so what is the solution? I don't know. I always try to think through it towards the solution. I just don't know what if there is a solution. But even with that, um, I can't think of any place 
in the United States where we would be left to just be? Can you? No, I, I can't at all. I, I agree 100% with that. However, again, I'll go back to what I said earlier. There are majority black communities right now in the United States that are doing relatively well. Oh, yeah. Granted, it's not, you know, all on the black dollar, you know, for example, but I think it, it creates the opportunity for those communities to become even more saturated with black businesses, with black people, with black educational institutions, with black hospitals, things of that nature. You know, so if it were to exist um, anywhere in the United States, I think you would have to start with an area where you already have um, African-Americans doing well. They already have some money. There's some infrastructure established. I think to expect the bourgeoisie to just get up from their comfortable environment and move out to a, a, let's just say there was this, this grand desert city. Mm -hmm. I think it would still be um, a monumental task to get people to just uproot themselves Mm -hmm. from everything that they have and, and relocate to an area like that. I think what's attractive, why black people move to Prince George's County, Maryland is because of what Prince George's County, Maryland already has why black people move to Atlanta, Georgia is because there's already black people doing well in that particular community. You know what I'm saying? So I I think it would really have to be around areas that are already uh, sort of close to the model that, that we want to achieve. So So what I'm I'm hearing you say is we need to do what we've always said, which is reinvest in our own communities. When you start to reinvest in your own communities, they just don't thrive, they grow. Oh yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Now, but the question centered around the United States Mm -hmm. to be, you know, I'm with everybody else on this podcast. I don't think it's even possible to do it here without there being just major pushback like there's always been. You know, history is our greatest teacher, but there is a significant movement for, I mean, matter of fact, um, there have been African leaders that are pretty much announced that black people in America, you are welcome here. And there's been an influx or an outflux, depending on the way you look at it, of Africans or black people moving from the United States to Africa. When you look at the numbers that have taken place over the past decade, it's they're, they're significantly higher, you Steve know, Wonder, folks. Yeah. Wonder just said he's done. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there are a lot of people that are already doing that there and the people, I mean, I don't know if you've seen any of the YouTube videos, but if you do a little research and find out, you know, how these people are functioning, moving from one continent to another, I mean, you, you find one success story after another. I mean, our people are loving it over there. They're loving it. You know, so uh, if it were to exist anywhere, it would definitely be the motherland. For sure. Well, I'll tell you, you look at Stevie Wonder has talked about moving to Ghana, mm-hmm. you know, and th- and this is a man that's been through quite a bit in life. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. he's, you know, and unfortunately he's visually impaired, but his mind has already told him through all the ups and downs and the, and the triumphs and tribulations that Ghana 
it's still probably the safest place for him to raise his kids and grandkids. Hey, real quick before we go, one of our um, listeners said um, part of the issue is what is more valuable, what you have or building a utopia? You know, and, and, and I guess that's one of those questions of should I stay here or should I risk it all? You know, because, you know, we're all 50 in our 50s. Mm-hmm. Is it wise for us to pick up and leave now? Or should we just stay here and ride the way? Can I can I ask one question? I, I, I'm going to go to that, Steph. But let me just ask you this: you, before you mentioned some some big names, you know, big money people, right? Do do you really believe, or it's, just, it's an honest question? Do you really believe that they would fund it? They would fund this this utopia we're talking about, you know, cause I mean, you gotta think about these people who made their money, however they made it, it wasn't all on the black, it wasn't black, it wasn't from black money. You know what I mean? It wasn't all because they were, they were in that community. And I'm not, I'm not knocking anybody on whatever they got. I'm just saying, it's not like, I, I don't know. I just don't know if I see people just saying, okay, yeah, let's go do this. And I, I got, I'm gonna fund the first I- billion. I would say Jay-Z um, is probably the one guy that's made most of his money off the black community or uh, using the black community to lift his brand, you know, because he mentioned Cristal. And all of a sudden, when they started buying more Cristal, and then Cristal kind of blew him off, and he established his own champagne line, yeah. you know. So, you know, um, no, but to answer your question, most of the money from the black community is generated by working for or dealing with the white community. Uh, Oprah has, you know, she, she had to use the white community to push her to where of she's course, at. Robert Smith, same thing. He had to use the white community. Um, uh, all of our NBA NFL players are using the white communities um, because we don't, we don't own anything except maybe the Charlotte Hornets. I guess what I'm saying, Steph, is let's say that let's say there was a location wherever it was, America or anywhere else, and there's a memo that came out. Everybody, a black person got the black memo, and it said, "Yo, Friday, we all leaving." Do you think that all these high net worth individuals would be on that plane? No, sir. Or be in that caravan? No, sir. Well, I mean, what percent do you think would be? You think fifty percent? Like no, 10? sir. No, sir. Not not the high um, high rollers. Absolutely not. They're, they're not going to leave. Um, Why would they give us their money so we can leave? Oh, okay, and, and that's cool. I mean, we could talk to David Chappelle. I, David Chappelle might support it. So here's, here's I guess here's where I'm going with this. We keep talking about the black community and all that. The black community needs to fund this. Fuck Oprah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. My, my expression. Fuck all of them. They haven't done anything yet. Double fuck Oprah. She took her money. She already sent her money to Africa to, to build schools for kids. When 10 blocks from, from Harpo Studios, you know, the, the damn city burned. She, she, mm-hmm. so, look, every minute. And, and she has every right to do it. That's her money. Right. I don't it, look, I, I don't need Diddy to do nothing for me. I don't need any celebrities to do it. If they haven't done it, they're not going to do it. And if they do do it nine times out of 10, it's a tax write off. Mm-hmm. I, I, I agree. They, they can be investors. You yeah, know, absolutely, which means that they, they would get their money back. But as far as looking for a handout, black folks shouldn't be looking for any handout from anybody. If you're talking anybody. about starting our own utopia, I'm not looking for that money back. I'm investing in us. Mm-hmm. So and, and, and so 
That's just the way I look at it. I don't need any of them to do for me what I can do for myself. I'm, I'm the community, all right? They're good. We're the community. We need to have, you know, we need to bank our money. We need to put our money somewhere, let it grow and invest and start, you know, building our infrastructure from the ground up. That's how you do it. But I keep hearing people, you know, they scream at these celebrities who have millions and millions of dollars. They're not obligated to give us their money once they've earned it. Mm-hmm. So stop. If we're talking about community, it's grassroots. It's, it's hey, it's, 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 it's save your money that you, you know, that you got in the jar up there. And, and that's the money you use to, to start bankrolling this thing. But we're not doing that because we're not coming together. Hundred percent. Bottom line. Yep, I agree. Yep, I agree. Now, here's a question: Do we allow trusted allies and mittens? You know, hence potential white infiltrators. And the, for, the first person I think of is um, Fred Hampton. You know, he had a white infiltrator within the Black um, Panther Party. They ended up costing him his life. You know, do we allow white allies to be part of this Black utopia? Anybody. As a matter of fact, here, here's a classic example. Wakanda. They let that um, white guy come in that was part of the State Department. Now, he ended up helping because, you know, he flew the plane and everything. But, um, you know, he, he learned his lesson. Go ahead, Chuck. I was just going to say that that, that that was Marvel. That wasn't real life. I, I agree, but I might as well throw <laughs> it out there. But um, it, it would be extremely arrogant, number one, and extremely naive to, to believe that we could have in 20, let's say 2029, 2030, uh, a society of all black people. Mm-hmm. Um, what about Asians? Yep. Hispanics? Yep. Uh, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Uh, why would we exclude them? Mm-hmm. I think the utopia we're looking for is a space that is free or we're looking for ultimately we're looking for a just a safe space to exist mm-hmm. right uh the whole fight is you know civil unrest civil injustice uh, uh police beating us killing us the whole nine yards we want to be free of that all right so if there are if we have like-minded allies that are truly our allies why would we push them away right you know so that's that's my take on it i don't believe we will ever you know if we were to set out on this path to have a one race utopia not gonna happen but if you're talking about having uh uh you know a place where like-minded individuals can exist from you know hate fear tyranny all this other stuff i think that's possible i think that's more than doable mm-hmm. you know and i think about one area um, not too far from us that i believe and wayne you may be able to help me with this uh columbia maryland you rarely hear about race tensions in Columbia, Maryland. And matter of fact, that's one of the areas where you have the major, uh, uh, not a, uh, a strong minority of interracial couples, you know, and, and, you know, it's just, it's, there's no major issues. Now there may be issues out in Ellicott city or other places, but in Columbia, Maryland, it was kind of established that way. Go ahead. Ryan. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I hear what you're saying. It, it, it's a planned community. And what they did is the idea was that there was no uh, good section and bad section, mm-hmm. right? So, so you'll have your, your, your single family homes, 
you have some apartments, you have some townhomes, and they're repeated, repeated, repeated. So it's not like this is where all the big single-family homes are. This is where all the apartments are. You know what I mean? So, so there was no area that was necessary. Now, there's still going to be some areas that are a little bit better than others, but there's no really, no really bad area. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it was designed. So, but people get along there. You don't, you don't have that red line intention, I would assume. I think so. I mean, you know, it's like any other place. It's not. It's not a big city. It's not a big town. But it, it's just like any other place. This, this, they got their share of little nonsense. But yeah, it's it's pretty peaceful. It, I I used to call it Pleasantville. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, and I guess the other thing is, uh, if we were to create a black utopia, one of the challenges would be state and federal oversight. So in that exact, uh, where I'm going with this is, if we move out west, the Republican Party pretty much controls the West. And they have a problem. Uh, they've shown to have a problem with black people rising. They, well, well, Steph, yeah. uh, you know, just a qu- just a quickly out west, you know what they do, what they, where, where they have their, their little utopias out there. That's, uh, they call them Indian reservations. Yeah. And those is not utopias. Correct. Correct. Right? It's kind of busted, right? And all the only thing they can get in there is alcohol and cigarettes. Right. Mm-hmm. They ain't got no real economy in there. Mm-hmm. They got their own police, you know, they do their own policing, but it's, it's not a good place to be. And so just because they're segregated and they got their own space, it is not a good space. I, I think that's the perfect example, man. That is the perfect example. And then, you know, you say, well, we can change all that with our vote. Look what they did to them when it came to voting. You know? Uh, so... I, I just don't see us having a fair shot anywhere in the United States. And now that you're talking about federal and, and state oversight and all that, that's the nail in the coffin mm-hmm. to me. All right. So what island country should we move to, guys? Uh, it's got to be Africa, bro. <laughs> it has to be. Or or perhaps even um, an area like, you know, South America, you know, Brazil. You know, Wayne and I were down there um, many moons ago. That wasn't me. Yeah, yeah, that was you, bro. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but we were there, you know, with our wives. Um, but the community was different. And one of the things that we noticed um, was that there was a bunch of of black people down there, you know, that were non-natives. You know, matter of fact, we, we spoke to one. He was a Brooklyn police officer that went to visit um, and never went home. You know, he made a life for himself down there because uh, the black man, especially, I can't really speak for the black woman, but the black man down in Brazil is he, he's treated like a king. He's well respected. He's not looked down upon. And it's it's a whole different vibe. And once you have a taste of that, you know, I can see why people, you know, some people get hooked and they don't want to go back. They don't leave. Because they're they're accepted in in those areas, so I would I would say that would be a strong potential, but I think ultimately we're we're talking Africa, in my opinion. And if I could just add one thing, you know, one of the things in in Brazil, <clears throat> more slaves landed in Brazil than they ever came to the United States. Yeah. So there's a huge huge black population out there, you know, that have that the African heritage. So it is a little bit different, but yeah, it's, it's, 
th th there's parts of Brazil, you, you hear about the popular Rio de Janeiro area, but there's other areas that are just almost like completely black. Yeah, Bahia, Bahia, Bahia Brazil, is, yeah, yes. because, and that's the, that was the closest land point to Africa. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and uh, Portuguese was strong with slave trading. So, yeah, that, that's definitely an area that I would like to visit. You know, I'm still thinking about Belize as I get older and older. Um, you know, you know it's a black country, English speaking, uh, Central America, and it's warm. But they just don't have enough golf courses for me to lose balls. So they, that's, that's, you know, something that's kind of bothered me. But I, I, I do have a question for the group, Steph, and I don't want to, uh, you know, send us too far left in the conversation. I want, you know, everyone to, to have the opportunity to answer that question you just posed first. So the, the question is, um, where should we? Yeah, where? Outside of the United States. Like I just mentioned, for me right now, my thought pattern is Belize um, because it, it's a black owned. Well, it's not a black owned, but it's a black led government. And uh, it's in Central America. They do speak English. Uh, matter of fact, that's the main language. And that's a potential place. My other alternatives is if I could afford it, um, you know, the, the Virgin Islands, the U.S. Virgin Islands or St. Lucia. You know, those are places I would love to establish myself later on because we're in charge. So I think it's a great question. And I, so my first comment would be, if I had to pick a place, it would be somewhere in Africa. I've never been to on the continent of Africa, so I can't really speak to a lot of it uh, or any of it really. But I think that would be an appropriate place um, but I, I think, you know, what we what we should do and everyone should all people of color should do is create your own utopia wherever you are. It doesn't have to be a mass of people. It can be your spot, you know. So like Steph, you just what made me think of it, you just mentioned St. Lucia. Right. And, and, you know, that's probably it's a really beautiful island and all that good stuff. And so but you go there, you're going to be real happy there and you establish whatever you establish there. But that might not be what somebody else wants to do. Maybe they need they need different types of climates or they like more mountains. You know, you see what I'm saying? So I, I think that, you know, the ability to go wherever it is that suits you in in your situation. That's just no, I agree. I, I agree. My mother is the, she loves the four seasons. I'm tired of being cold, you know, so, um, you know, it, it depends on what suits you. Uh, and I'm not knocking Africa. If, if we were to return to Ghana or um, Liberia or somewhere like that, that'd be fine with me, too. Uh, I would I would thank Africa for their invitation, but I wouldn't accept um, culture clash. If you're asking all black people to pick up today and move to Africa, show of hands, how many of you are from Africa? How, I mean, you may have been to Africa, but what do you know about Africa? You're going into another country. And so now you either have to assimilate to their culture or now we're forcing them to adopt portions of our, it's a lot going on. So I just see down the road where the indigenous people or the people that live there are like, who are these motherfuckers coming here trying to tell me how to, and then here we are coming and say, well, hey, you you invited us home. You 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 take what we bring with you. We're, we're, you know what I'm saying? So I see it. 
And I, I thank them, but I think if we're leaving here, we need to go someplace of our own. Where? Don't know. Uh, black folks, we, we tend to like warmer climates. Uh, somewhere outside the U.S., somewhere that I don't know. But we need, if we're going to leave here, we're, we're supposed to be leaving here to start fresh. I don't see that as a fresh start. I don't see Belize as a fresh start. Um, again, culture clash. Now you're, you're coming into someone, you have to uh, learn that culture. That culture has to learn you. It's a lot. If we're all leaving here, we need to go someplace of our own, establish our own, um, and then if we want to start to branch out and maybe, you know, go to, some of us go to Africa and, and you know, you assimilate, but for, I, I, I don't see that being the move. I think we need to establish our own place to, if we're talking about building a utopia, to start fresh and then. But, but at the same time, we don't knock Nigerians and tell them that you have to um, adjust to our culture. I got a Nigerian next door to me and, and, and he's. Wow. Yeah, but I'm just right. But but we're talking about millions and millions of Black Americans now flooding a country. So now you're talking about us coming over there, bringing all of our American bullshit that they're not necessarily accustomed to. So when that your Nigerian neighbor moved here, he moved here with the expectation of it's just me in this country. I I have to kind of learn their way, you know. But if a million or millions of black people are moving to, to Africa at their invitation, say, hey, we're giving you land, this, that, and the other, we're coming with expectations. You know, we're, we're bringing our stuff with us. Um, and there's going to be, at some point, there's going to be a clash of cultures. So, and that's not to, to say we can't manage it and that it's going to be uh, bad or awful, but it, it, it just is what it is. Um, there's going to be a learning curve. So having said that, start fresh establish our own base, you know, because, you know, we've got, you know, we, we're, we're leaving here with still American values. So, in, you know, in, in American ideals. So that's what we, we take with us. And we, we start up wherever we are. And then those who decide, hey, I want to branch off, that's, that's what we do. But that's, my, that's what I would do. Okay. All right. Valid point. Charles or Wayne, you have anything to that? I think we might need to go to the moon. <laughs> yeah, just can't gotta find some water and uh you know heat the place because it's cold on the moon. Hey, well, you know, <laughs> one of the things that led to this conversation was um a previous conversation that we had. And I think that we perhaps need to talk a little bit about that. Um because one of the things that we were referencing was what if the United States of America had lived up to its promises to black folks. And we got that 40 acres in a mule. Mm. What if our folks were able to benefit from their inventions? You know, the brother that invented the, you know, Jack Daniels whiskey, <clears throat> you know, the, 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 the brother that invented the, the telephone. I mean, just so on, so many different things, so many contributions that we made. What if they never burned Black Wall Street to the ground or, or, or Rosewood or Seneca Valley? What, what if those areas were uh, just left alone and were uh, allowed to thrive? I Where think, would we be as a people? I think white people's greatest fear would have been realized. 
Um, so you think we would have massacred them? No, no. I think we would. That's their fear, though. Well, <clears throat> true. Let's say their other fear. Their other fear of not being in power. That's, you know, Correct. white people, their, their, their thing is power. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> but, and, and that's it with them. You know, it's, 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 you know, they call it white supremacy for a reason. Uh, because they, they feel like they're superior to us. When, in fact, almost everything they have is because of us. You started, list, you, were, you know, started listening to the names of, of various inventions. If we really tapped into the inventions and what makes this world go around, it's us. So um, that, I think if that, you know, none of that had happened, the landscape of um, not just the, the United States, but the world will be vastly different. Um, I mean, just going back into our history, I mean, just where we come from, come on, man. I mean, we're the original mathematicians. You understand? I mean, we can go, I, mean, I don't wanna get too deep in it, but the bottom line is we're, we're the shit. Mm -hmm. We are the shit. And um, so, yeah, if, if, the, if, the, if that stuff hadn't come to pass, I really believe that the racial landscape of the United States of America would be much different. And you say much different, better. <coughs> because they would have had to respect the economic power better, that comes with. Better and safer sooner. Okay. No, I, I agree with you, Chuck. Uh, no okay. question about it. And I think about the inventions and I think about the fact that uh, um, America fell in love with a black president and the majority of the white supremacists couldn't stand it. So they, did, they threw each and every roadblock that they could to stunt his growth and stunt the growth of the United States. Heck, you look at the current um, you know, troubles that we have in Congress, a lot of that is rooted in white supremacy. And the fact that you know, the Republican Party hates the fact that they've lost a um, majority, therefore they're trying to stimmy any and everything that they can. Now, so yeah, it, it's it's rooted in racism. If we had that forty acres and a mule, they would have done anything and everything to either poison our land or um, stunt the seeds' growth. Um, you know, and and there's recent cases of those type of things happening. Oh, so, that's it. <clears throat> yeah, there's there's been a resurgence. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and talking back to Stevie Wonder, that's one of the. You realize Stevie Wonder has now had to live through this twice. Yes. With the resurgence and you know um, <clears throat> the insurrection on Capitol Hill and the yeah. uprising of white supremacy and all that, this is his second go round yeah. with this battle in terms of race relations. Yeah. yeah. So I can understand his frustration. Yeah. What the hell? We went through this already. I'm this yeah. is this the fifties all over again? Uh, yeah. Come on, and this is coming from <clears throat> a blind man. Right. If you listen to hear him, you really hear him speak. I mean, he, it is is is. I understand every word of of what Stephen. I I understand his feeling. I think but I you you said that. second go round. I'm I'm a little confused by well, the that. civil rights movement. He was he was young during the civil rights movement. He's he was he, <clears throat> he was in there. He was there. Yeah, but but we've always been catching hell. It hasn't stopped. So, so, so when we talk about second go around, it's as if I'm talking uh, about a resurgence, 
Okay. I mean, they've been, it's still been here. We know it's been alive and well, mm -hmm. but it's been, you know, they've been under rocks. It hasn't been this, you know, prevalent. We've been dealing with, um, you know, institutional racism and all that. And of course, bouts of, of, of you know, physical racism and, and stuff like, but now it is, especially with the, uh, it's the introduction of the Tea Party, then Trump, and now, you know, white, it's on the, it's full blown again. You have the new racism, the new flag is the Trump flag. They stormed the Capitol with Confederate flags. I mean, that's, this is reminiscent of, you know, the 60s. So that's what I mean by he's going through this again. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I get it. But I, I just think about, you know, we were catching hell under Reagan. We were catching hell under Bush. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is not caught hell. It, it, that's what I'm saying. You know, this yeah. has been just just consistent, yeah. man, nonstop. But the, but it, the challenge that we've had people marching through the streets with tiki torches yelling, Jews will not replace us. Correct. Correct. You know what I mean? So, so the challenge is this, the past four years, they've been very overt with their racism exactly. out mm -hmm. in the open. Yeah, they've been emboldened. They've been, you know, their president told them to. Correct. You know? <clears throat> if you see if you see him, punch him, I'll pay for your, your, your legal fees. Really? That's how your president speaks? Yeah. Hey. All right. Well, I tell you what, fellas, we're going to kind of wrap this up. Um how can we create our utopia? Hey, viewers, if you have ideas or suggestions, or if you want to throw some money at it, um, you know, you can just throw it at Just Be a Man. We'll, we'll take all money and uh, we'll start and create that black utopia. You tell us where we're going to create it, you can throw some money at it, and, you know, we'll get a lease on the land and possibly buy the land so we can create that utopia. But in all seriousness, what we're going to do, we haven't done it in a while, and I think it'll kind of lighten the mood is we're going to um, have a round of drop the mic. Unfortunately, Mike is not here. Mm -hmm. Michael Thigpen is not here because he always anchors because he's always got something silly to say. But, you know, fellas, what's on your mind? Um, you know, what, what do you want to get off your chest? And I'm going to start with a guy that uh, grew up in Marinette, New York. Uh, he's always got something on his mind. So with that, Wayne Tucker, drop the mic. Wow. All right. Well, first of all, I want to say <clears throat> I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't know about Central Park's oranges. So, but I'll, but I'll put that out there. Um, but I, I, I seriously, what I want to talk about is the fact that we have uh, the diff the cases that are going on in, in in our capitals today around what happened in uh, with the insurrection on the January this the sixth. Now, the problem that I have with it is, is, is that it, it's, everything's on tape. You know, we're spending taxpayer money, a lot of it, to keep talking about something that is very obvious. I mean, they have pictures. They, it's, it's not a guess anymore. But we continue to go through this, continue to deal with this, and nothing's going to happen to these cats. Nothing's going to happen to these dudes. And it's like, so why are we going through the motions? So that's how I feel about it. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but that's my drop the mic. Lock them up. And just to piggyback on what Wayne just said, where else can you storm the United States Capitol and get a pass to go to Mexico on a vacation? Okay. Hey, you know, I, I'm really, I'm ready to hit. Mm -hmm. um, Tom Joyner used to uh, hit a button called white. What was it? Privilege or 
Remember that button? Yeah, anyway. All right. Well, <laughs> our next drop the mic comes from the senior guy in the group, the guy with the uh, Under Armour uh, baseball cap, the, the chef, the uh, consummate professional, the political expert. Yeah, he's looking around trying to figure out who we're talking about, but uh, none other than Chuck Smith. Chuck, drop the mic. Uh, for my drop the mic, <clears throat> uh, eat your vegetables. <laughs> now, now, you know what? See, uh, actually, my, my drop the mic is, is kind of serious. Today, uh, through the COVID restrictions and all that, I had to take my, my son to get his senior pictures. And, you know, you know, just take him to get his pictures. And um, we got home <clears throat> and, you know, I'd sent him out, you know, the, the trash cans were the driveway. So I sent him to get the, you know, I pulled him in the driveway and I sent him to get the trash cans and bring them up. And I'm looking at this kid walk to, towards, you know, and I said, damn, where did the time go? You know, my this little kid that I'm, you know, my, this joker, you know, and so he's walking back and I'm looking at this man walking back at me. So my drop the mic is spend every moment you can with your kids because they're not going to be kids forever. Love them, cherish them, cherish those moments because you're going to blink and they're going to be graduating from high school and going off into the world to uh, be the fantastic young people that you've raised them up to be. So that's my drop the mic. Okay, I appreciate that, Chuck. And now going to the man from um, Fort Washington, Maryland, also known as Charles mm -hmm. Castile, member, probably member of Megan Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated, uh, father of three, but a lover of so many. Charles Castile, drop the mic. <laughs> Dude, just putting all my business in the streets. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I got a busted intro. I got a busted intro. Steph getting bad as he goes. What the hell is this shit? Hey, man, I will take it. Rude to the bros. But, um, you know, real quick, uh, normally I like to end with something real light, but uh, I just want to give a shout out to um, all of my classmates at uh, Friendly Senior High School in Fort Washington, Maryland. Oh. And, um, you know, Chuck knows this, that we actually uh, lost someone that was near and dear to our class, uh, Miss Lisa Lomax. She uh, passed away unexpectedly. She was uh, driving on Route 50 and a driver was actually going the wrong way. Oh. And um, it ended up being a head on collision, which took both of their lives. So many of our classmates haven't seen each other in the past, you know, 35, 36 years, um, including myself. I hadn't seen uh, Lisa in quite some time or her brother, James. But um, the, that particular story and the events that took place um, have really touched the hearts of many of our classmates and, and and folks have been reaching out to each other and things of that nature. So I just want to uh, send, you know, prayers of condolence to the family, but I also want to encourage everybody to just continue to, you know, live life to its fullest because man, you never know from one day to the next, 
what's going to happen. So enough with all the BS that's taking place. You know, we've talked about some of it on this call. There's always going to be racism. There are always going to be problems, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But just live your life, man, and, and enjoy this thing. You know, we only have this one time around. And um, let's just take full advantage of it. Mic drop. I appreciate it, Charles. Um, and, and definitely condolences to the family as well as um, friends. Because uh, you know, that's a tragic way to um, to lose your life. Um, anyway, my drop to Mike from Stefan Andre Deville, also known as uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stefan Andre Deville, United States Army, retired, all that good stuff. Is wow, wow! I I did not interrupt your weight loss journey. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh. Oh. I missed it. I missed it. I, I said I didn't interrupt your weight loss journey. And you and Randy Jack, you and Randy Jackson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, my drop to Mike is the world's richest man, or almost world's richest man. There's there's discussion that he should buy the football team. I'm almost for it because I know we'll have a world class stadium, and um, mm. you know the, the team will want for nothing. That and that definitely includes money, but I really believe this is an opportunity. And Wayne, I see you frowning, but you know I really believe this is an opportunity for a minority person or group of minority persons to potentially buy the team. Hey, if you look at the National Football League, the majority of the players, over fifty percent, if not sixty to seventy percent, are African American males the actual players. And it's time that we have some type of representation and ownership of African-Americans. Um, and I think this is a fine opportunity for a group of African-Americans, you know, one guy can be the majority owner, to have an opportunity to purchase the team. Um, Jeff Bezos could purchase it in a heartbeat, but I'm not sure if he's interested in football. You know, and I'm not sure if that would be a wise investment of his time and effort. Give a minority owner an opportunity to purchase the Washington football team. Mic drop. Any comeback, Wayne? Because I see your face. I, I didn't know they was for sale. <laughs> no, there's discussion out there. I, there, there, I, there. There may be some pressure on Dan Snyder to finally give up the team. I got $25 on it. Okay. Well, hey, you can buy a couple of shares in the football team. Yeah, because uh, that's that's about what they're worth right now. Twelve dollars and twenty five cents a share. On Robin anyway, Hood. on Robinhood, yes, yeah. yes, and actually they're not on the stock market, so don't look for them. There's not a stock symbol for them, but still, I ain't mad at you. But anyway, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, this is our time this evening. I'd like to thank you for joining us on Just Be a Man. You can follow us on uh, Facebook, of course, as well as Instagram, um, Spreaker. Amazon, anywhere that you get your podcast material. At any time, you can also go to www.jbampod.com pod to um, download our content. Chuck, you had a quick shout out? I was just going to point it towards YouTube also. They can take it out. Absolutely. Subscribe on YouTube. Uh, absolutely. Not only on YouTube, but tonight's episode is, has already been recorded on TikTok or is in the process of being recorded on TikTok. So, look, we appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to listen to our rant and raves. We look forward to um, next week's topic, which 
Uh, we will publish in the very near future. I think we're going to have a guest next week. Uh, but if not, we'll have something out there to, that is good for your mind, body, and soul and gives you food for thought. So with that, we send you greetings for a, uh, a prosperous day and the rest of the week. Thanks. Shout out to Mike. Deuces. Thanks for joining us this week on the Just Be a Man podcast. Be sure to check us out on social media at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube, where you can follow, like, subscribe, and comment at Just Be a Man 2020. We will love to receive your feedback. Also, if there is a topic you would like us to discuss, please leave it in the comments. Remember to tune in every week for more meaningful discussion. Until then, we wish you peace and blessings. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and guests of Just Be a Man 2020 and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Five Nights Media, LLC, and its subsidiaries. There are those who say, Leave well enough alone. If it isn't broken, don't fix it. You don't mess with success. While others have something quite different to say. The Lexus RX. With dynamic handling and available 12.3-inch touchscreen, it's the best-selling luxury crossover of all time. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Click the banner to discover more. News, laws, and regulations are changing by the day. We get it. It's hard to stay on top of it all. That's why ADP is here to guide you with up-to-the-minute compliance expertise to help you navigate these complex times so you can pay your people accurately and on time, regardless of changes in legislation. When you rely on us for payroll and HR, you're trusting us to help you take care of your people. It's what we've been doing for over 70 years, and that's not about to change. ADP, HR talent, time, benefits, and payroll. Informed by data and designed for people. Keep listening to our weekly episodes to find out more. Do you ever feel overwhelmed by the ever-changing world of technology? Tech It Out can help make some sense of it all. Breaking down geek speak into street speak, technology columnist, author, and TV personality Mark Saltzman covers consumer technology each week for every listener. Mark tackles the latest news, reviews, and how-tos to help you understand what's hot, what's not, and why. Hey everyone, welcome to Tech It Out. Hope you're all having a stellar day so far on this last weekend of February. If you're on social media, come by and say hi. Tell me what you think of this show. I also write a tech tip of the day and I link to videos that I shoot and articles that I write and so on. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. You can find me at Mark Saltzman. That's Mark with a C, S-A-L-T-Z-M-A-N. All right, we have a great tech talk planned for you this hour. We have a treat, in fact, to kick things off, especially if you love your dogs. <laughs> down boy, down boy. No, that's not my dog. That's a sound effect. We're going to chat with the dog whisperer, Caesar Milan, in a moment about a high-tech caller. Halo Caller with Caesar as well as his business partner, Ken Ehrman, from the company. If Caesar heard that dog, he heard his noise and he makes like, tss, tss, something like that. Anyhow, but I digress.
Also this hour, we're going to learn about what's new in external hard drives and why it's absolutely critical to back up your computer's information on a regular basis just in case something happens. Like I had a major issue a month ago and could not get into my PC, but thankfully I schedule a backup every night onto this external. It's an offline hard drive and uh, it minimized the the damage because I was able to just reinstall Windows and put everything back in again. We're also going to talk about a new and high-tech way to wait in line during the pandemic and after it with a company called Qless. Get it? Q, like a lineup and less, since you don't have to wait in line, literally. Okay, never mind. We're going to chat with them this hour. Again, the company's called Qless, and they're spelled the letter Q-L-E-S-S. All of this and more on a brand new Tech It Out, powered by Asus for those in search of incredible. I'll tell you more about them a little bit later in the program, but let's kick off the show with our first interview. One of the topics I love exploring on this show is pet tech, especially if it means technology that can help protect our furry friends from harm. And we're now going to learn about Halo Collar, designed in part by world-renowned dog behaviorist Caesar Milan. And the TV star and author is joining us on the show right now, along with Ken Ehrman, founding and managing partner for the new Halo Collar product. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Hi, how are you? Thank you. <laughs> hey, Caesar. I know you're on your uh, ranch and the cellular reception is a bit spotty, but thrilled to have you on the program. Ken, why don't we start with you? Before we talk about Halo Collar, is it true pet adoptions have soared during the pandemic? It's pretty amazing, actually. Looking at some numbers here that were published that shows the growth of pet adoptions increased four times over what they were in 2019. Mm. 35% more dogs were adopted in 2020 than 2019. And that's about 11 million new pets added. It's pretty unbelievable. Yeah, that's good news all around. And I'm not surprised, frankly. Caesar, I understand that you co-founded Halo Collar with Ken. At a high level, what's Halo Collar all about? It's about, you know, having a peace of mind. It's about really understanding how to love your dog. So people, you know, people love dogs. Doesn't mean they know how to care. That's why dogs develop, you know, problems, and that's why people seek for my help. And that's why a lot of dogs end up, you know, getting lost or running away from home. So it's it's really helping people to protect their dogs, to be more proactive with behaviors that need to be practiced when you're not at home. And that's, uh, you know, once you understand the the technology behind, we we have something called Beacon. And that Beacon, what it does is it helps you to make sure that your dog respect areas of your house when you're not there. So when the dog is practicing this mentally, he, he, uh, he goes to work. This is his formal way of going to work. Because if a dog gets bored or frustrated, he's going to destroy your house or show unwanted behavior. But in the mind of a dog, the dog is working, right? Because the human has to care for the energy of a dog, and the, and the human has to give a dog a job. So for me, developing tools is to empower humans to be able to connect, communicate, so they can have the relationship that everybody dreams with a dog, which is trust, respect, and love. Like I said earlier, you know, my clients are dog lovers, but they don't know dogs. And so the reason for technology and the reason for even, you know, the classes that I do and the TV shows that I do is to, is to give humans the best tool, which is knowledge. And after that is, is, you know, creating things that allows humans to learn at the slow pace because people take a little longer than, than dogs to learn, but to have the tool that helps you uh, supervise the activities you're looking for which is boundaries, which is rules, which is limitations, you know, so you can have the freedom 
of having a, a dog that listens to you at all times. They, they misbehave 100% of the time, even when you're not there. Hmm. And that you can go for a walk freely because, you know, Halo does all of that. It tells you where the dog is, that's the GPS. It, it, it helps you create boundaries. So if you go to the beach and you don't know how to create boundaries yet, the Halo color gives you access to create boundaries. Right, and then the, the beacon helps helps your dog to remember the rules of not go to the refrigerator, do not go to the, a couch that a human don't want you to go, especially when the human is not there. Do not get into the uh, trash cans. All of those things stimulate the mind of a dog and allows the dog to to well behave, to be to maintain his well behaved way of being. Right, and at the at the end, my favorite aspect of the halo is the leash. You're going to be able to press a button, and from your phone and the halo. Color, you're going to create a, a mini halo that is going to keep your dog inside your intimate space. So now, even when you're not, you know, uh, paying attention, your, your, your halo color will, will do it. So it's a smart way to keep instincts close to you. Awesome. All right. Now, Ken, when it comes to training your pet and protecting your pet, can you walk us through the four different features of halo collar? Sure. Well, first of all, if you, uh, if anyone listening to this call Googles it, it's pretty staggering. You can uh, see for yourself about 10 million dogs a year are lost um, and about a million dogs are run over by a car. And that's because they just don't understand the dangers of roads. They don't understand really the boundaries that humans have set up. So the idea, the first most fundamental idea is you can create a fence. You go on your phone, it's like a Google map view of your house or your friend's house or the beach or a park. You draw the fence on your phone and now your dog will remain within that safe area. And if they go to the fence, they're going to get a beep or however you want to train your dog, but that's what I use. You're going to keep your dog within a safe area to be off leash. So that's okay. the first thing. Got it. So I use that at my house. I let my dog out uh, during the day and she can run around the property, but I know she can't get off the property. Then I take my dog with me hiking. And when I do that, I use the lease feature. So I see where she is at all times. And there's a, another button on the app called the whistle button. And if you press that whistle button, uh, this is part of the training, my dog, no matter what she's doing, comes right back to me, right back to the heel position. So even if she's just saw a deer, she is fully trained on whistle. And as Caesar will tell you, dogs will listen to that whistle. So she listens to it every time. And no matter what's going on, she comes right back to me. Um, so it's a tracker, it's a fence, it's a training tool. So we have, you know, experts like Caesar and others who are giving you uh, approaches to be able to train your dog. And it's also an activity tracker. So when your dog is spending time off leash, you can tell how many, you know, miles they went compared to maybe you. Whereas before, when they were on a lease, if you went a mile, they went a mile. But now when I take her for a walk in the mountains, okay. she's running all over the place. Sometimes she goes three or four miles while I go a mile. <laughs> it's like a Fitbit for your dog. I love it. Exactly. Caesar, I understand your world-renowned dog training methodologies were used as the foundation for Halo Collar. Could you elaborate? My whole existence is about training humans. I don't train dogs, I train humans. So it's very important, you know, that humans learn how dogs learn, first and foremost, because that, that way when you're teaching boundaries, rules or limitations, or even celebrating a behavior, you need to understand 
you know, what makes a dog understand it. That's what exactly, you know, the time people communicate with a dog, but they don't have a clear communication. So the methodology that I, that I teach is teaching humans how to connect with the right energy, teaching humans how to communicate to a dog the way he understands, so you can develop the relationship of trust, respect, and love. Then, then after you understand that, then you bring technology, then you bring tools, then you bring whatever you want. So it's very important that we humans understand how they connect, how they communicate. So that's my methodology to make sure humans understand how animals do it, or in this case, how a dog do it. Remember, you know, we always call dog man best friend, but doesn't mean the human is meant as dog best friend. You know, we, we still having uh, unwanted behaviors with our dogs, but they're born with those behaviors. We create those behaviors. So it's very important for us humans to understand that, and number one, we create bad behaviors. Dogs don't want to give you unwanted moments in your life. They just want to give you awesome, happy, loving, you know, instinctual moments. But if the human doesn't understand how things work, and then the human unconsciously is going to make a mistake. So that's the methodology, how you learn not to make a mistake and you don't feel safe, peaceful, and love, and trust, and respect, and, and loyalty. Uh, you know, one thing that Caesar uh, loves to say that I think resonates with me is humans love to give affection, 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 but that's not really what dogs need. They need exercise, discipline, and affection. Halo is a tool to help execute on that. We'll continue chatting with Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer, and Ken Ehrman from Halo Caller when we return after this short break. But first, I want to thank Asus, the title sponsor on this program. Asus creates technology for today and tomorrow's smart life, and that includes its line of award-winning laptops and desktops. Head over over to asus.com slash us slash radio for more info that's asus.com forward slash us forward slash radio we'll be right back with more tech it out listen to tech it out whenever you want find the tech it out podcast at itunes or wherever you get your podcasts chatting with Caesar Milan, internationally recognized dog psychology expert who has starred in numerous TV shows and is a best-selling author. And we're also talking with Ken Ehrman, both our founding partners for the new Halo Caller. Now, Ken, there are other smart dog callers on the market. What do you think makes Halo unique? The biggest difference is that it's both a fence, but almost like a smartphone for dogs. So if you look at the collar, it has the ability to communicate with a dog through vibration, through sound, through static. Caesar's famous sound. So what that means is you can, as a person, communicate with your dog through the collar. The other smart collars that are out there are just trackers. They're not really about communication and, and training and really about having just the best relationship with your dog. They're just trackers. Yeah, good point. I have written about several other high-tech dog collars in the past, and they are mostly virtual fences or invisible fences. Now, can you also mention that the collar can give a, some slight vibration as a cue if your dog is getting close to that uh, edge of the virtual fence? You mentioned that you prefer sound, but that is an option, and it doesn't harm the animal. But is there a rationale for having one or both? It's just really up to the user what they find most effective. Caesar. 
where where exercise plays a big role in order for your dog to become sensitive in case that you don't want your dog to to receive any uh, any warning that you don't you don't agree they're there in case that the intensity of a dog is to rise depends on the intensity of the dog is going to be the warning that he's going to receive and the the whole point is to make sure that he doesn't cross the boundary because after that, he's not mm-hmm. safe anymore. So exercise plays a big role. That's why it's important to read the instructions because I want to make sure that I prepare people to keep our dogs at the, at the highest level of sensitivity so they learn fast. This is what I call calm surrender state. So when the brain is in a calm surrender state, everything they learn everything fast and they learn everything in a very sensitive way to the point that a simple is enough for their behavior not to continue. Okay. And that's why I use the sound you know yes that's that's why i use certain sounds but first i exercise the dog so the physical energy is out of the learning experience now the only thing i have is the mind before we wrap up ken and talk pricing caesar what's next for you what are you working on now is where our where could our listeners find your work well we're i'm super excited we just finished 10 episodes our new series right now it's called caesar's way and right. uh, i'm definitely going to show up a lot um, what we've been working you know uh, here at the ranch uh, people are coming to the ranch and getting trained and and it's my family now my kids are 26 and 22 so it's my family helping families not just me uh, this time so I'm very excited that my pack is helping your pack <laughs> that's awesome all right Caesar's way we'll have to look out for that awesome and then Ken how much does halo collar cost and where could we learn more what's the best website for example the website is www.halo collar.com h-a-l-o collar.com it's currently 799 dollars it's a 200 discount right now less than an invisible fence with four times the capabilities so you know the typical invisible fence could be two to three thousand dollars plus you can't take it with you you can't take it with your to your friend's house it has no portability and you got to bury a wire in the ground so it's mm-hmm. really less expensive and a lot more functional are there any service fees if you want to track your dog's whereabouts if they escape the virtual fence? Right now, you get uh, six months of free gold service uh, if you buy it today. Eventually, there will be a monthly fee. You're going to have about uh, the low end will be about $4 a collar for unlimited cellular, which is obviously a lot less expensive than any cell phone plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is for your dog. And then the high end will be $30 a month for access to premium content like Caesar Milan trainers, maybe even sometimes Caesar himself to solve any kind of training or other issues that you might have with using the collar. So you kind of have the high end, the premium content, dog training for $30 a month and kind of the basic fence functionality, but all the main functions for uh, less than $5 a month. All right, Ken and Caesar, thank you so much for your time. Uh, best of luck with Halo Collar. Appreciate your time very much. Thank, thank you. you. See you guys. Bye-bye. For the remaining time we have in this block, I thought I'd reach into the old mailbag and answer a tech question from a Tech It Out listener. And you too can send me a note at tech at marksaltzman.com. That's T-E-C-H at M-A-R-C-S-A-L-T-Z-M-A-N.com. Or you can hit me up on social media. Come say hi. Let me know if you have a tech question. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube and Facebook. All right. So a question comes in asking, Mark, I love reading and I'm trying to decide between buying a tablet or an e-reader. Please help. 
Okay, so there are pros and cons for each choice. So I'd be happy to walk through them with you. As you might expect, ebook readers or e-readers for short are designed primarily for reading. They're usually smaller and lighter than tablets, which make them more portable and easier on your wrists while holding. And they have a non-glare screen that makes it easier to read in bright sunlight. Not so easy to do on a backlit tablet. Some e-readers are waterproof, making them ideal to read in a bubble bath or by the pool or beach. They have battery life measured in weeks, not hours, and they're more affordable than tablets, generally speaking. But a tablet is a lot more versatile. Consider it a computer that's touch-enabled, and it could be used not just for reading books, but also for accessing social media, playing games, listening to music, watching videos, web browsing, email, photography, and video calling, all on this one slender device. So again, it's more versatile. You could do a lot more with it. They have larger screens than e-readers, and they're also in color. But again, tablets cost more than an e-reader, but at least there's more than a million apps to download many of them are free or close to it so you can fully customize your tablet there you have it a look at the difference between e-readers and tablets you are listening to tech it out i'm your host mark saltzman stick with us when we return we're going to learn all about Qless. this is an alternative to waiting in line especially during a pandemic we'll be right back with more want to follow mark google it mark with a c and saltzman with a z Breaking down geek speak into street speak. This is Tech It Out. Tech It Out with technology columnist, author, and TV personality, Mark Saltzman. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Tech It Out, especially during a pandemic where we're encouraged to be socially distanced from one another. An app that reduces the need for lineups or crowded waiting rooms couldn't come at a better time. And so we're now going to learn about Qless, an electronic queue management system with Charlie Meyer. He's a VP at Qless. Welcome to the show, Charlie. Thank you, Mark. Glad to be here today. For our listeners, Qless is spelled the letter Q, L-E-S-S, but a cute play on words, of course, as you're all about reducing the need for a Q or a lineup, as we say here in North America. So at a high level, what is Qless all about? That's a great question, Mark. Qless has really created a paradigm shift in the way people wait. And it's an intuitive mobile wait technology that allows businesses to enable consumers to manage their own time and be served when the business is ready to serve them. Got it. Okay. So with that in mind, talk to us about some of the key features of Qless. So I know there are things like remote queuing, virtual callback queues, as well as flex appointments. So maybe you can walk us through what this is all about. Absolutely. So, you know, we've been practicing social distancing since our inception in 2009. So, you know, COVID is something that we were kind of built for, and we were built on a, built on a mobile platform. And so, you know, if you imagine a world without waiting in line and customer complaints, um, you know, QS had the vision to become a reality for businesses. And it's an intuitive mobile technology that eliminates physical lines it optimizes efficiencies that enhance customer satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, it also builds loyalty and increases profitability. Now, for a consumer, what it does, Mark, is it allows a consumer to get in line from anywhere. So they could download the Qless app. They could come in through a business website where they're checking in online. They could get in line at a lobby kiosk. We even have the ability to text into line. So they could you know, text retail, for example, 
uh, as the keyword to a dedicated number, and it would put them in the queue. And then the magic really takes place, Mark. So what happens then is I am told, you know, Mark, you'd receive a, a text saying, Mark, uh, thanks for getting in line. You're currently eighth in line, and your wait is 28 minutes. Hmm. And we'll keep you updated during your wait. So now consumers can wait where they want to wait. They can wait at home. They can wait at work. They can wait in the car. But they don't have to wait in a crowded lobby. And then what's really interesting about Qlist is there's a lot of solutions out there that are able to send a text, but ours are interactive. And so consumers will continue to get updates as they move up the queue, and they can also interact with the queue. So they can push themselves back, so they could say, I need 20 more minutes. Ah, right. They can leave the line. They can rejoin the line. They can press H for help. And all of that, you know, is in the app or within text in. So that way, nobody's left behind. And that's really a key um, differentiator with Qlist is, you know, if you ask everybody to use an app and everybody to download the app, that can be a lot of extra steps for people. And that can be challenging when you're dealing with government offices, different ages, things like that. But almost everybody receives an, an SMS text. And so we find that we have about 99% adoption rate. All right. So you do not need to first download the app, but as long as you have a mobile phone and can receive a text message, an SMS, then you're good to go. So a very low barrier of entry there makes a lot of sense. Can you walk us through how it works as a customer? So let's say I want to go, I don't know, there's only curbside pickup at the home improvement store in my area. And will I just get a notification if that store supports Qlist and just say, hey, Mark, uh, do you want to join the line or like after I buy buy something online and I want to pick it up? That's a great question. So yes, a, a business must be a, have a subscription with Qlist. That's the most important thing. You know, we work with government agencies, colleges, retailers, mm -hmm. healthcare. If they have Qlist enabled, you would get in a queue for, for service. They'd keep you updated. And when they're ready to see you, they'd say, hey, First, you get a text that says, hey, Mark, you're almost at the front of the line. You know, your current wait is 10 minutes. Please start heading back to our store. Got it. So that way, we call that a predictive summoning message. So we're kind of giving you a warning that, you know, you can start heading back to the store. And then once you have arrived at the store, you can actually hit A for arrived, and it'll actually tell the, the retailer that you're on site, and they can come out and give you your package. Oh, very cool. We are chatting with Charlie Meyer, VP at Qlist. This is an electronic queue or lineup management system. I was going to ask you if it was developed because of the pandemic, but uh, as you mentioned, you've been around for years uh, prior to COVID-19, so good timing, I guess, on your end. With businesses, could they leverage the fact that they've got this customer now uh, connected to the, to the store, for example, where they could maybe upsell them? Like if I'm told, okay, Mark, you're eighth in line at whatever home improvement store and picking up a lawnmower, could they say, do you also want to pick up this that complements, you know, is there anything like that, that, that could incent a business to want to adapt your platform even more? Absolutely. So, you know, most of the time when uh, cu customers come in for uh, a retailer or a business, you know, they want to get served right away. And so they're not typically there um, to, to keep shopping and shop more. And the reason is they don't want to miss their turn. And what's unique about Qlist is we have such an engaged wait that we're able through the SMS text and through the app 
to um, announce, you know, make them feel comfortable to walk around the store and and do shopping uh, while they wait, and we'll keep them updated. And we promise you're not, you're not going to miss your place in line. And so the shop while you wait is pretty amazing. Uh, typically with a retailer, a big box retailer, we'll see up to a dollar a minute spent while somebody's waiting. Wow. And speaking of which, I saw some numbers on your website. Can you quantify the success of Qless to date? So yeah, Mark, uh, Qless can increase uh, revenues in the business by up to 50%. We can also create operational efficiencies by up to 90% uh, by streamlining customer journeys and workflows once people arrive. And we can also improve the customer satisfaction up to 99%. So it can truly be a game changer for benefiting a business. All right, Charlie, as we wrap up, how much does Qless start? I'm assuming it's free for the customer, but for a business to subscribe to your platform, how much does it start at? And where can we learn more? Uh, yes, Mark. So um, it is free to consumers. They don't pay anything for Qless. And for businesses, it ranges anywhere from $50 a month up to $500 a month, depending on features and functionality that they choose. Um, obviously, with enterprise applications, those are very unique and depending on the number of locations. And then the best website is qless.com, right? Q-L-E-S-S.com? Correct. Okay. Great chatting with you, Charlie. Unfortunately, it took a pandemic for me to learn about this, but I know you've been doing this for several years. So uh, continued success. Thanks again for your time. Thank you, Mark. We'll be right back with more Tech It Out. Stick with us. Breaking down geek speak into street speak. Tech It Out. Hosted by Mark Saltzman. Hey everyone, you're listening to Tech It Out, powered by ASUS. ASUS creates technology for today and tomorrow's smart life. And that includes its line of award-winning laptops like its ASUS ZenBooks, its VivoBooks, its Chromebooks, and ExpertBooks, which are business class laptops. Tech it out at ASUS.com forward slash US forward slash radio. That's ASUS.com forward slash US forward slash radio for these awesome laptops. Speaking of computers, at the risk of sounding preachy, I always talk about the importance of regular backups of your important information because you never know what can happen. Even a techie like me ran into a huge computer issue about a month ago, but was saved because my info was backed up onto an external Western Digital Drive the night before. Whether you're a computer user, a smartphone lover, or a gamer, we're going to learn what's new with Western Digital's various drives as we've got Brian Pridgen with us. He's Consumer Marketing Director at Western Digital. Digital. Welcome back to the show, Brian. Hello, Mark, and thank you for having me. And I definitely agree with you when it comes to making sure that we're all cautious, not just about backing up, but really how do we manage our digital content? And when you think about it, first of all, I would just like to applaud everyone out there for their resiliency. Kind of in the, in, in the time we are today, um, we're seeing actually that consumers are consuming, creating more digital content than ever before. So it really speaks to the fact that consumers out there and folks just like you and I are very resilient. We're keeping on going and we're still creating. 
Absolutely. Many more millions of us are now working or schooling from home as well. So we need to better manage all of this data on our devices. Before we talk about specifics, maybe you can share with us a bit of information about Western Digital and to break down the different divisions under that banner. Like uh, there's WD Black for gamers, there's SanDisk, G Technology, and so on. Yes, absolutely. What we say is no consumer left behind. And when you think about that, whether you're a gamer, uh, we have a product line under Western Digital called WD Black that's been specifically products that are designed, built, engineered, tested by gamers. Then when you look at Sandus, Sandus is a brand that's been around for a while. It's the world's number one trusted brand by professional photographers, and it's known for our USBs and our memory cards. And as I said, it's the most trusted brand out there. We also have G Technology, and G Technology is really for professionals, and they're looking for guaranteed access and possession and protection of their content. So those products are really geared for studio-level performance and studio-level protection. And then when you get right back down to kind of the core Western digital brand, um, and that's what we call the WD brand, and you may have heard of our products called Passport, MyCloud Home. Those are our traditional storage products that are really geared for productivity, but we've also added some new things. And once we get to talking about specific products like MyPassport, portable SSDs, we can really talk about some of the unique things that we've added to uh, Western Digital, the MyPassport line. With that in mind, there are other storage companies. So what would you say separates Western Digital from the rest? There's a number of things that really separates Western Digital for the rest of the companies that are out uh, making storage products. One is we've been doing this for a long time. We're celebrating our 50th year in memory. Wow. And what that means is we really know the inside and outside. In fact, when you think about uh, SSDs, we invented the first SSDs back in back in the 80s, right, before we knew that the business would be a tremendous opportunity because we tre- we are looking ahead of the market to see what consumers need, what they want, and we're then trying to plan for the future. But one of the biggest things from kind of a technology standpoint, there's a lot that goes into these products. There's the memory itself, there's a controller, there's firmware, and all of those th- three things have to be integrated together. And we are one company, one of the only companies that has expertise in all three of those areas, not just an engineering standpoint, but a marketing from an end user consumer. They're telling us what they want. They're telling us the performance they need. And we're building products that far exceeds the reliability of any of the other competitors out in the market. Yeah. And to me, reliability, Brian, is the number one thing. I mean, uh, it's great if you can find a, I don't know, a five terabyte external drive on the cheap, but is this going to last? And are you going to trust your irreplaceable photos and home movies and, and documents with that? A lot of times they will fail over time because they're not made with great parts. And speaking of external storage, Brian, I'd love to start with portable solid state drives or SSDs for short. What makes these so popular today compared to an HDD or hard disk drive? There's been tremendous innovation in portable SSD even over the last six months. And we've been in this business for a while. But really what it comes down to is we are all creating more content than ever before. And now we all want to have it at our fingertips. And so when you think about portable SSDs, the one thing that people think about over hard drives, and by the way, hard drives, fantastic storage devices for storing tons of capacity with multiple terabytes. There's spinning disks involved. 
and there's a level of reliability that we deliver with those products. But when you talk about SSDs, the big game changer is speed. So today, for example, you can, you can purchase a SanDisk or a Western digital SSD that can reach speeds up to 2,000 megabytes per second. And even six months ago, that was unheard of to have that much performance that fits right in the palm of your hand. So what that means is as you're transferring files, as you're copying files, it's all about saving time and transferring those contents. So it really comes down to Portable SSDs, the big advantage over hard drives is speed. However, it goes even further beyond that. Sorry, Brian, we got to put a pin in that. But when we return, more with Brian Pritchin from Western Digital. So hold that thought, Brian. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Follow Mark Saltzman on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Listen to Check It Out whenever you want. We're chatting with Brian Pridgen, Consumer Marketing Director at Western Digital, about all the different kinds of external and internal drives that Western Digital has, uh, catering to a different type of person in need and budget. Now, before the break, Brian, you were just about to tell us about the WD My Passport line, if you want to continue on that. Yes, it actually comes in a very, very stylish metal enclosure. And one of the things that I mentioned earlier, I talked about the vertical integration, but really in the reliability and the trust, and those go into all the products. And I also like that they have that little carabiner loop or, or hook area where you, it's got like this little uh, enclosure where you can clip it to a backpack or a purse or something if you want. Isn't that right? Now, absolutely. When you think about the products that are geared for mobility, you want to take them with you. That product that you're mentioning is our Sandus Extreme and also the Sandus Extreme Pro. And those are specifically designed with that little carabiner loop in. So if you want to clip it inside your camera bag or if you want to clip it to your backpack, you can be rest assured that wherever you go, your memories are going to go there with you. And both those products, by the way, are waterproof and rugged and they're built for on the go. We're chatting with Brian Pridgen. He is the Consumer Marketing Director at Western Digital. Just two more questions for you, Brian, before we let you go. Backing up from an iPhone or an iPad can be tricky. There's no spot for a micro SD card or a USB port or anything like that. Tell us about the iExpand family from SanDisk and how you solve that problem. Yes, that's a really, really, really good point that we often overlook when we buy a, a new phone for example, that happens to be landlocked because there may not be a slot for a memory card, right? So then you're thinking, well, how do I get all these images off the device? Well, we have a couple of different ways you can do that. One is our iExpand drive. And what an iExpand does, it plugs right into the Type-C or the Lightning port into your iPhone, and it lets you directly, physically, it looks similar to a USB, but you can pull those images directly off of the phone. So that's one way you can do it. That's kind of a traditional sneakerware that I would call it um, type of performance that we're all used to with USB. But let me talk to you about something that's totally new. Um, think of the concept of if you have your, your iPhone or your Android-based phone and you want to not only back it up, but every we all have the same challenge with a smartphone is that at some point you have to charge it. And what we're doing today is we're saying let's take advantage of the fact that everyone needs to charge their phone. So we have a wireless charging pad, but what makes this wireless charging pad totally different than anything else in the world on the market, it also wirelessly backs up the content on your iPhone. So 
just as I set my phone down, or if you set your phone down now to charge it on a 10-watt wireless iXpand charging pad, it will also back up. So what that does, it gives you the confidence to know that you are powered up and charged up and ready to go. It also gives you the confidence to know that up to 256 gigabytes of content or photos that you may have on your phone is backed up, and that all equates to peace of mind. And that's really what we're about at Western Digital, inventing, creating unique products that solve problems. I always get that shut-the-front-door face when I tell people what the SanDisk uh, iXpand can do, where you put your phone down on top of the little tray or puck, if you will. It wirelessly charges up the phone and wirelessly backs up your important photos and videos for you in one shot. They, that's just like you, the look on their face is priceless. So you can learn more about that, of course, at SanDisk.com. Now, before we wrap up, Brian, gamers are a big part of your audience for both PCs and consoles. What do you have for this group? Now, the real key with gamers are gamers want the latest, greatest performance, reliability, and capacity as well. So what we've done is we've designed a whole new product, a whole new lineup of products that are uniquely designed with gamers in mind when it comes to look, the feel, the performance is called WD Black. Um, It's been phenomenal, the success we've had over the product. We're working with several of the key industry influencers on really how to, how to make gaming cool. Gaming's already cool. The challenge for us is how to make storage gaming cool, and we think we've done that with WD Black. So I'd invite everyone um, to come to our website, westerndigital.com. Look for WD Black. You'll see some of our internal solutions that are all about speed and performance that help you load up the game faster and store more games. And you'll see some of our portable solutions that are also about taking those games with you um, to share and continue to play more with your friends. That's the thing with today's games is that people are buying fewer discs, so they're downloading these huge games. So you need an external SSD like the ones from WD Black in order to store the games, not just to back up like I talked about off the top of our interview in my introduction, but also to run content in real time from those drives. Incredibly important. I know you've got a slew of them. I've got a four terabyte SSD from WD Black that I'm very proud of. And as you said, Brian, our listeners can go to westerndigital.com. Thank you so much for your time. It's always great chatting with you, Brian. I love your passion as well as your knowledge and experience in this space. All the best. Thank you, Mark. Anytime. Well, we've run out of racetrack on this week's Tech It Out episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Have a great rest of your weekend, a healthy week ahead, and I look forward to catching up with you next weekend for another brand new episode of Tech It Out. Bye-bye for now. We've been listening in on those two drivers, sir. Take a listen. Nice work, Agent, whatever your name is. Sorry, let me just dial in the frequency. Um, stand by. This is a Nissan sales event ad. Got it? They're saying it's a Nissan sales event ad. Bravo, you cracked it. But, uh, wouldn't there be some sort of announcer, sir? Give it a sec. Secrets out. Hurry in for unbelievable savings at your local Nissan store or shop online at NissanUSA.com. Right now, save up to $7,262 on the 2021 Nissan Titan. Seventy-two sixty-two on purchase of 2021 Titan consists of 4,000 cash back, 2262 Titan Chrome package savings, and 1,000 multi-package savings on SV trim only. Purchase from new dealer stock. See dealer for financing details. Call 1-888-858-8319 for offer details and important safety information. Ends 3-1-21. Thank you for listening to today's episode.
come to an end. But the fun doesn't have to stop here. If you have any questions, suggestions or feedback, head over right now to Twitter and Facebook and like, share and get involved. Join us next time. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.